Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my brother across the Atlantic, Graham Goodwin. Hey, tomorrow's a really awesome day, right? I believe July 4th is considered a national holiday in the UK as well, or am I off on that slightly? totally off on it but uh, at the moment i am basking i have to say near tropical conditions in the goodwin family conservatory um but uh, no tomorrow uh, for reasons which will become clear i'll be spending a couple of days not at a racetrack but a very much a motorsport meeting on a still on a bit of a secret mission something that's been very much under the radar but will bring you in depth almost certainly in inside the sports car paddock next week well Nonetheless, wish you a happy 4th of July in advance. I love is that a significant it. date? Is it, is it a significant it's, date? It, all I know is there's something related to fireworks that we do huh. here. I don't really know the rest of the story, but uh, there's some England angle that I, I think I recall from grade school. I, I, is, it the, is that the day where your soccer team gets its arse handed to it in the, in the Women's World Cup? I don't think so. I believe contractually, any sports that Americans participate in on July Fourth, I believe actually we are we're required to win. So Fair enough. that's a guess. Well, it's, it's a concept. It's a concept. Speaking of guesses, as the official <laughs> chooser of which sports car series category we open the show with every week, what should we start with, Mister Goodwin? Well, after the spectacular happenings of last weekend, we can only really go with SRO. No, come on, it's IMSA, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's what, what, you know, well, I will get into this, but whatever else we get into here, what an amazing result. And IMSA, uh, I'm going to dole them out to you. And I'm going to start with a positive uh, let's have a quick chat before we get into questions, MP, about the immediate reaction to Mazda's first win in the prototype era um, with IMSA. Before that, um, you know, the United uh, Sports Car Championship. But I think I'm right. This was the 54th race of the prototype campaign for John Doonan and his merry men and women and uh, a spectacular way to do it with that one two win been trying to get this done for a day or two i've had a couple of things on the home front that have uh, conspired against that but i did look up the very the start of the very first race for the mazda program in imsa's prototype category in 2014 and to the day to its victory on sunday at watkins Glen. Captured that victory, Graham, in the number 55 Mazda RT24P. Five five years, five months, five days. So, wow. Yeah, that 5-5-5 five, wow. five, five with a victory by the 5-5, five, five, I thought that lined up very nicely. Well, well that's a good, it's good news it wasn't the 77 then, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, that might have been painful. Uh, just but, but amazing. Have you, but have you ever seen a senior executive responsible for a motorboat program as excited as John Doonan was at the point at which the 55 and the 77 took the flag? I thought just a marvelous, marvelous moment. That, to me, is just what this sport is all about. 
let me just read you quickly and then we'll move into questions here. This is the first three paragraphs that I've written uh, of a little op-ed thing, just celebrating on this very exact person and topic. Five years, five months, and five days after Mazda went racing with the Mark's first IMSA prototype program at the Rolex 24 at Daytona, and as the number 55 RT24P drove into victory lane, the man with the biggest heart in motor racing finally received the gift he'd been seeking since January of 2014. And by the time he returned home on Monday, Mazda Motorsports Director John Doonan checked his phone and saw more than 600 messages <laughs> awaiting his attention. His email inbox was also filled, topped by a warm congratulations from Roger Penske, whose Acura ARX 05s were handily beaten by Mazda Team Yost's RT24Ps. The enormous reaction, signaled by the outpouring of hundreds upon hundreds of inbound texts and other forms of contact, was similar to what a new Indy 500 winner receives. All this for a man who runs a racing program in IMSA. That's the thing that stands out to me, Graham. The, the overwhelming, the tsunami of love and communications and texts and emails and direct messages and you name it. The, the volume is exactly that of what you would hear from someone who just won the Indy 500 for the first time a Daytona 500, 24 hours of Le Mans. This, the entire world wants to congratulate you. This isn't a driver, though. This isn't the, the person who was famous, who, you know, folks are getting the hero cards and getting their autographs and taking selfies with. This is just for a very, very humble man from the American Midwest who loves Mazda more than anything on a professional front has invested, by and large, his adult life into the brand and finally has the thing that they have come close to so many times. And I think that's really the other big angle here too, Graham. It's not as if this win came out of nowhere. This is a program that has been so close so many times. Should have five wins, I don't know, seven, eight wins, ten, who knows, over the past five years but for one reason or another something mechanical failure strategy failure driver error something has conspired against that so i believe the being so close and having it taken away so many times just added to the overall feeling for john specifically so so happy for him we're going to get into questions i'll say this much um about john doonan in an era where the people that lead in also very many ways do not inspire confidence, do not inspire goodwill. Um, it is very nice indeed to see somebody in charge of a significant program that forms a cornerstone of what you and I do in our professional day-to-day -day lives, inspiring exactly that. Um, you know, that's, there is that. There is that as well. I don't think John's ever done that. unless. True. Uh, if there is, if he has done that, I'm sure we can write about that any day now. But it is great to see an executive. That's what John is, you know, um, bringing that kind of level of just respect um, and all the other good fluffy stuff that comes with that. 
because they've finally broken through. And I think they'll go on now to do great things. Let's kick off with questions because I know we want to keep this one pretty tight. Um, well, let's kick off with Rob Horn. Um, is Mazatimius 1 and 2 at Watkins Glen enough for Mazat to keep the faith uh, with the programme? Seems to Rob that it's an obvious yes. Uh, but we know how most sport programmes can be yes, but no. Hashtag money talks, of course. Hashtag me personally. Rob, one of the key things to answer here is Morosan, who is the still relatively new uh, president of Mazda North American Operations, the head of Mazda's uh, American arm. Uh, his post, I believe it was on Facebook, uh, congratulating the team, celebrating the team, celebrating the brand, this is a fairly awesome case of coming back to John Doonan, John and the head of the company being just truly bound together in this mission. So traditionally when racing programs are under review, might falter, might get the ax, usually happens on the chief marketing officer, chief financial officer, it's usually something with folks determining whether it's delivering the marketing impact or the financial efficiency that's being hoped for. Not saying those folks aren't involved or would not be involved in such a decision if it came up for discussion should we continue. But I think it's just very important to know that the actual man from Japan in charge of Mazda in North America uh, he is fully invested in this as well. So I don't think it was honestly a case of this thing's going to go away at the end of 2019 without a win, but I think this maybe any tensions that were there, and there were many, surely, hey, we've spent a lot to do this and haven't been able to win yet. I think there are a lot of folks who woke up Monday morning and went to the office in uh, Irvine, California at MNAO's base saying, Awesome got that thing we've been needing let's erase any real questions as to whether this can or should continue let's, let's add one into that it's a separate kind of strand but the same kind of theme from tom firth on facebook hi tom um did mazda dropping their mazda road to indy support pay off with the result this weekend in terms of focusing investment and funding or is it unconnected as i understand it tom and this is yet again a case where I've asked them to send me all their financials, and they've yet to do that. So still waiting, still waiting. I checked the mailbox. Uh, I can't say this with complete authority by any means, Tom, but from what I understand, 100% unrelated. The savings of what I believe was 2 to $2.5 million a year in investments in the Mazda Road to Indy that – uh, went away at the end of the 2018 season. That was not a reapportioning of that money from one motorsports program to another. I believe the decision made within Mazda North America on the marketing or financial side was done just simply as a savings. Hey, we don't really see value in this anymore. Let's just stop it. And so we are actually just going to be able to show that we're no longer outputting two to two and a half million dollars for this thing in motor racing. So as I understand it, Tom, not a decision made by John Doonan, the father and creator of that program. It was actually something made above his head. 
and they said, we're just not going to spend that anymore. Let's move on. And it's a, a questioning tone from two of our questioners, uh, which is what questioners do. Um, Russ Lahr from WC's Reddit group and Jerry Harding from Facebook, two completely different takes on the same incident or the same issue. Uh, Ruslar says, short view into the past, in 2017, Rebellion Racing received a, dis- a DSQ at uh, Le Mans for cutting a hole in the engine cover last weekend. Mazda won the 6 hour Watkins Glen with a car whose engine cover was literally falling off and a broken rear wing clip. If Eduardo Freitas was in race control Sunday, would the Mazda have been shown a mechanical flag to reattach the cover? Is there a happy medium between the two scenarios? Less black flags and more. Whilst Jerry says, as a long-time Mazda owner and fan for over 20 years boy you must be happy all i can say is yes the win with a long time coming feels way more significant than the last overall wins in the lms days i suppose i don't actually have a question i'll go with this would him sort of dared black flag the 55 with its engine cover loose i believe yes they would have black flagged if they saw that it was moving around uh, and back to Rissler's question uh interesting comparison there would just say that we're talking two completely different things the disqualification that happened with a rebellion at le mans involved making illegal modifications to homologated spec don't touch it don't modify a bodywork so that was the team drilling a big hole in something by rule by law they were not allowed to with what happened to mazda a mechanical, if you want to call, I mean, I guess we want to call bodywork mechanical, a, uh, a, a part of its clothes became unbuttoned, significantly unbuttoned. Um, that, to me, is part of wear and tear in a endurance race, knowing this is six hours instead of the normal two hour and 40 minute. If that engine cover had started to flap in the breeze, moving around, those are the kinds of things, seeing that it had already unbuttoned itself from the central spine that runs down the Riley Multimatic Mark 30 that the RT24P is based on. It had already become unbuttoned and was laying back uh, on the side pod, but at least as I saw it after that happened, there were enough additional um, fixtures holding it in place where... Although it peeled back and laid back, it did not move. It was not moving around to then. It didn't It didn't flap, did it? It no. didn't flap at all. And if it were doing that, I think Bo Barfield would have yep. very seriously considered black flagging the car because that additional or constant movement and flapping around, that's the exact thing that rips away the final mounting points and creates a flying projectile. As and for, frankly, by the way, he would have been correct to do so at that 100%, point. 100%, without- yeah. It would have been, quote, heartbreaking for the 55, but knowing that the 77 was also in pretty darn good shape, confident Mazda would have come away with a win. Full credit to Bo on this. He is a racer. He is someone who has raced for many years of his career and gets this, knows how things attach, has had to use tools to attach things and remove things from race cars, fully gets the fact that he can look at something like that, knows from his own background, okay, that's looking a little iffy. We're not going to let this run. So, Jerry, I think the the main takeaway here is knowing that the bodywork was laying in place and was not moving, knowing that although it had come seriously adrift uh, but had only gone, I guess, semi-adrift, 
was holding in place. We have a race director who's built race cars, driven race cars, knows their composition. Bo's the type who does not want to throw a yellow if he doesn't have to. And I think you add all those things in and realizing that it was not flapping in the breeze, I think that's why we ended up going to the checkered flag with a 55 uh, using the left side of its engine cover, waving to the fans. So, um, but great question. Great question. Let's kick off with another couple of uh, Mazda questions. Why not in this uh, great, still great week for them? Um, we've got uh, MBO from WC Reddit. Confused by the pace of the Mazdas the weekend and for the last year, uh, asking, well, uh, believes uh, DPI is a BOP formula. Uh, what's their secret? From what I witnessed at Watkins in particular, and by witnessed, I mean watched on the television, but also looking at the lap times. Uh, from what I saw, I did not see cars that were brutally over-advantaged in single lap trim in the race. What I saw was the fact that an average lap time throughout the stint seemed to be the Mazda's greatest greatest power. Uh, the Acuras, for example, really were strong at the beginning of their stints. And I think there's something in here, Graham, that does fit what we hear from most technical uh, delegates and technical directors in racing series that use BOP, where they say, well, we don't BOP outright lap time. We BOP to come up with the best average pace in a race. Excuse me. And I believe that's what was achieved here. And I think the issue, again, just coming back to the Mazda at Watkins, and we'll step back to a few other races too, but I think what I saw stand up most of all at Watkins was the Mazdas were the fastest average vehicle among the DPIs over a stint. I believe the Acuras were faster in terms of outright capabilities, but for a shorter burst and at least from what I've heard and also seen a little bit, it does not look like the Areca 07-based Acura ARX-05s are as friendly on their tires over a full-length stint. And so I think that, Graham, is where things start to diverge. With all the work that's been put in by Multimatic, I know that Team Yoast is the one that facilitates and runs Mazda's RT24Ps, but the true unsung heroes that have made these cars so fast and now capable of winning and now having won, it is Multimatic. 100% Multimatic. Aerodynamically, kinematically, from suspension, just across the board, the work that Multimatic has done, these Riley Multimatic Mark 30-based DPIs are just sublime when it comes to consistent performance using tires in a very friendly way not over consuming tires etc so i think what we saw at watkins in particular was just a bit of a divergence here graham where the arecas i believe are faster over a single lap in race trim but not able to maintain that throughout the entire stint the mazdas it appeared were doing that very happily, very consistently. And then we look back to some early races this year, Graham, where reliability was the issue for Mazda, but certainly at Daytona, certainly at Sebring and some other rounds as well, 
it definitely looked like the uh, Mazdas. We could be at a place where the Mazdas have three wins right now, maybe even four. So in BOP form, it looks like um, IMSA has been doing a fairly good job there. The only thing I would say maybe takes a little bit of a step back to that assertion is if I'm a Cadillac runner or someone listening to this show that fields and enters a Cadillac DPI VR right now, um, they might be hurling things at me uh, because it seems like the Cadillacs, by and large, have not been able to be overly competitive in race trim. So, uh, yeah, happy. Uh, very happy for the Acura and Mazdas in terms of competitive BOP and race trim. Cadillac folks seem to be maybe not in a happy place they once were in that same regard. Hey ho, uh, life's like that sometimes, isn't it? We move on. Um, it's actually linked in with that point about the fine work done by Multimatic. Uh, question was from Stephen McGuire on Facebook. During the IMSA commentary, it's heard that uh, Yost only has a few engineers working on the cars this season. Most of the work being done by the Multimatic team. Is that correct? Are Yost being phased out? I do not believe there are any. Yoast engineers involved with this program. If I'm talking race engineers, performance engineers, assistant engineers, aka data engineers, mm-hmm. I can't really, th- and I could be wrong, but I can't think of anybody in a true engineering capacity on the Yoast side that is responsible for these cars. One of the major off season twists was longtime Yoast Racing Technical Director Ralph Utner taking a step back and no, is no longer affiliated with this Mazda program, would say that there's also a, a very clean break in that regard to Graham in that coming into 2019, vehicular performance, just period, is now sole domain of Multimatic. And... I'll just I'll throw this in as a truth that I have seen. The more Mazda has called upon Multimatic, the more they have apportioned responsibility for the performance of these cars. Not the bolting together, not the tire changes, etc., but the actual how to make them go fast through testing, simulation, development, uh, and then at the track with find people like Alina Gade, um, up and down, standing on the timing stands, looking after, tweaking, making these calls. The more Mazda has engaged Multimatic, the better their fortunes have become. And so the victory last weekend, and who knows what's going to happen this coming weekend at most sport or elsewhere, when we see these Mazdas flying, Graham, it's because Mazda has said, hey, Multimatic, you're really smart. <laughs> Use them smarts to make these cars go faster than ever. And it truly is as simple as that. It's worth actually mentioning. You mentioned Lena, uh, and I can recall a conversation with at least one of our correspondents here to do with Lena and linking her to Yoast. I'm pretty certain, and correct me if you know me to be wrong, that Lena may have been a consultant at one point to use, you know, but I don't think she's ever been an employee. I think she went from progressive engineering, a uh, fabulous little company here in the UK, to being a direct employee of 
Audi, then on to Bentley, and now to Multimatic. I'm not sure she's actually ever been uh, a used direct employee. That that would line up with my knowledge as well. Yeah, she was part of Howden Haynes Engineering Service Supply Group that uh, yep. was the infrastructure for the Audi Sport LMP1 program for so many years. And yes, and so Lena did indeed after that somewhat brief stint between Bentley then working in IndyCar with the Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports team, uh, and then after that uh, unpleasantness, uh, was absolutely in super, super hired by Multimatic, where, uh, to my understanding and everything I've seen and heard, both sides are very happy in this relationship. Excellent. Good to hear. Two final quick questions about uh, Mazda. Um, we've had this question before, but I do tend to wonder, as things progress in a positive uh, vein, whether or not uh, a big racer boy from UCR Reddit Group, now that Mazda US boys have finally got one in the wing column, is it possible to see some thoughts of customer Mazdas? Doesn't feel like they are at that place yet. I, I know that it is a goal. And I believe if we have a situation where the DPI marketplace starts to ramp up, I think that there could be a demand for them. But I do think, Graham, and tell me if you agree, I think we're entering into we're entering into a bit of a, a no man's, no woman's zone insofar the timing involved. So here we are, what, mm-hmm. round seven of ten uh, this season yep. for the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship is about to run. The 2019 season, uh, although I realize goes through October, there aren't that many rounds left for DPIs. means that we're not too far away from the 2020 season being here. We know that new chassis are coming in 22. So while I would love to hear about an extremely wealthy team, highly funded, that wants to go DPI next year and insists on having Mazdas or a Nissan uh, from Liget or Cadillac. I think we're going to enter into a phase here where, unless it's a new manufacturer coming in, I think we're going to enter into a phase where we might be surprised at how little new car sales will take place. Just because if we have a formula change coming you'd be kind of crazy to spend the extreme amount of money necessary to play for two years. And I think the point here is as well, is it's, it's not an insignificant formula change that's being considered here. We're not talking here a minor tweak. We're talking here a fairly fundamental change. And that's the point at which thoughts of grandfathering becomes problematic. You know, having stability is a very good thing in terms of, you know, being able to formulate a meaningful package around it, it's a very bad thing if what your thing is is turning up on a race weekend and not knowing quite who's going to be there. And we do miss that, actually, uh, in, you know, a stable series like uh, IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship or indeed for the FRWEC. But uh, that is one of the costs is we don't have a lot of movement from race to race. So there, there's one another... Final... Well, I was just going to throw in here, and this might be a good little place sure. to park this topic for a second... Or not park the topic, that park the question, specific question for a moment and dwell on this a little bit. So we have a case, Graham, where IMSA has said the current DPIs will be grandfathered, I believe, for one year. So again, in theory, if someone were to buy something new for 20, 
they could race it through 22. So they get three years of use out of it uh, and or buy something used, right? If we think about the core auto sport team, they have a lot of spares with the Nissan on rope DPI. Could they, would they sell enough of one for someone to use and run? Possibly. I think Mazda as well has enough spares that if someone were to want <laughs> to run an RT24P, um, <clears throat> maybe it's a team that they know well. I'm just spitballing, but maybe it's a team that's competed in the, uh, what was formerly known as the Mazda Road to Indy. And so it's a, call it a team that Mazda knows has strong feelings with, has maybe had some sort of relationship with in the past, wanting to make one car available, but essentially made up of spares. Knowing that, again, in a little over two years' time, all these spares are going to be completely useless and, for the most part, valueless. That would make sense. I I could see that happening compared to, all right, boys, spool up the autoclave. We're making new everything for someone. (laughs) But where I think... Again, this is one of those, if I can think of enough to make it worth writing a story, maybe I will. Maybe just what we're going to discuss here for a moment will have to suffice. But I'm curious, Graham, to see where IMSA might go with DPI 2.0, what's coming here in 2022. I wonder, I wonder, my friend, if there's been a mistake not a grand mistake, but a mistake by IMSA president Scott Atherton stating publicly, I think in articles you've written, I've written, others have written, that hybrids are coming. It's going to be a part of DPI 2.0. I wonder if that might end up being a mistake. And I, I say that because just talking rumblings coming out of the most recent manufacturer's uh, steering committee meeting for DPI, I think happened maybe, I don't know, the days are blending together. Last week, uh, 10 days ago, five days ago, seven, whatever it was. I'm wondering if there might be a growing number of manufacturers who might be thinking no hybrid at all, and that being an option. And are asking if it could be an option. And this is just me inserting how I would approach it if I was sitting in there as a manufacturer well, rep. But I've heard that while IMSA is seemingly 100% on board with making the next generation DPI as a hybrid, part of me is wondering if there might be a walking back of that if enough manufacturers say, you know, uh, this $125,000 per system that you're calling for, we, we, we don't, we're not sure if that number is accurate uh, and not sure if that accounts for everything that would be required on the, maybe the design side and whatnot, the testing side, it could be much more expensive or value wise. Hey, as a company, we know, for example, um, Ford, uh, I think we were the first ones to write that Ford, you know, was, proverbially pounding the table in one of the uh, steering committee meetings uh, a month or two ago saying, if it's not a high power hybrid, we're effing out of here kind of thing. I've heard that there might've been one or two other manufacturers who've fallen in line with Ford on that topic. Great. Okay. So you want high power. I've heard that there are a couple others who are 
definitely still on board, Graham, with a low power, cheap, mm-hmm. inexpensive token. We just want a token to be able to say we have a hybrid. We're not really interested in hybrid, though. I think there might be, <clears throat> I think there might be a third option of some other manufacturers. I don't know their names. I'd tell you if I did, but I, from what I'm hearing rumbling and rumor wise, I think there might be a third option that hasn't really been spoken about for a while, over a year. And that is the naysayers. Hey, (laughs) if we wanted hybrids, we'd tell you, we don't, I don't want the cost. And from a marketing standpoint, um, we aren't getting that requirement from our chief marketing officer, chief financial officer. So, uh, yeah, this doesn't suit us. So it just makes me wonder, Graham, if in this thing that seems like it's been just strictly a formality, hybrids are coming, period, end of story. I'm wondering if, knowing that Scott Atherton told me recently that uh, effectively December 31st, 2019 is when they want to have the 2022 DPI regulations distributed. I'm just wondering, in this time now, from early July towards the end of the year, if there might be a third option, maybe even a fourth, the third being, well, we have high power hybrid, low power hybrid. Could there be a third of no hybrid? Could there be a fourth of optional? This third and fourth option, again, I just wonder how that might change or shape things. And if it does, if those things do come into some sort of favor, this might not be as straightforward a uh, closing out of the year as we would like, my friend. Sounds awfully like another debate about uh, regulations, what? if you ask me. It, it sounds like and a hyper-debate. <laughs> it's, it's just truly a hyper-debate. It, 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 the odd thing here is, um, you know, we joke, but the odd thing is the more you look at not closing the door to a prospect, which is what we're talking about here, the more you get into the same debate. You get into the same debate no matter who it is you're having that debate with. Um, and... I truly hope, I truly hope that whatever comes out at the other end of this, that we get to a stage, you know, in a year or two's time where we can have conversations between, you know, good, sensible people about some truly world-class events, which truly will have global significance and that, you know, we don't have people, you know, sitting in their own corner, uh, hiding behind a not invented hairline. Uh, that would be just so sad uh, when it's so close to being, you know, the opportunity that I think most, most fans would love to see, which is get the very best from the very best championships in the world and get them onto one track and find out who's the daddy or the mummy. Oh, who's my daddy? What was that? I'm at a loss that reference a little bit. I think I know who that was. All right. Well, where should we we've go? Got what, we've got one final uh, master question. I hope you know the answer to this because I absolutely don't. And that is... 42. No, but it's not. Um, Corey Schumacher from Facebook wants to know what's on John Doonan's oar. Oh, um... Oh. Lord, I'm forgetting it, it, uh, some sort of, gosh, I'm forgetting the phrase. It's it, some, something along the lines of victory. No, it's, is, it, is, it, is it not something like, no, it's not a damn rotary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, that, that's exactly it. No, uh, it says I'll have the number two with cheese and a diet Sprite, I believe. I believe. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's something, a gift that, uh, <laughs> uh, he and the team were given a while ago from, uh, executives in, uh, at the global headquarters. And yeah, they have carried that with them for a while waiting to, uh, to show the, uh, the victory spoon, um, that they finally earned. So yeah, just really happy for them. It's no longer a thing, right? Um, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just mention this, I guess, cause I'm feeling a little dickish right now, but, um, there's been a, a virginity watch going on in North American sports car racing with a, a particular individual for long over a decade now. And I'm not saying that there's been any kind of, uh, engraved spoon or something that would be waved around <laughs> if that transition into, uh, uh, womanhood slash manhood happens. But yeah, I'm just so glad that at least this long time watch, it's no longer a watch. Mazda has its first win. It was not a fluke. There was nothing involving someone else having a disaster for it to take place. I'm just happy that it's no longer a topic. We can put that behind us. Um, My friend Stephen Cole Smith, a longtime reporter here in the U.S., wrote what I just described as a hit piece right after Daytona and just savaged uh, the team and John Doonan and, you know, how many ra- look at how many races they've lost. And, it, you know, just, I don't know why it was written. It see, seemed to serve no purpose. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I did hear that, um, he did reach out and say that, uh, to ask how exactly he should prepare crow because he was prepared to eat it. Um, <laughs> so uh, again, I realize we're talking about one victory. We're not claiming that, uh, world hunger has been solved and cats and dogs are now living together in harmony, but we've at least seen evidence that when things go right, they can win and they should be able to continue winning. So, um, yeah, that watch is over the other watch. I think it's still going. I haven't really checked in on it for quite a while, but, uh, yeah, if, if a a person's, if the virginity watch is all that's really left to make sports car interesting, maybe we need to come up with some other watches. We'll move on. You never know where um, the show's going, do you? Good one. You don't. Well, here's, well, here's one. Here's one, um, which, because of the unique way in which uh, this show had come together this week, I know you've made, uh, you've explained on Facebook, but we'll explain for our listeners too. This was recorded in two parts for the very best and worst of reasons, and we absolutely wish Chabral well in what's, I know, been a massive struggle for her and for you, pal. Uh, but there's a bit of irony in the next question from Michael Perrin uh, on Facebook. And you'll understand this when you hear the question and the timing that I'm actually asking it against the timing when he actually sent it. Uh, but uh, Michael asks, given that Core uh, clearly know what they're doing, isn't this sound running off the pace of less favorable BOP, a lack of factory investment compared to the competition, a poorer car being exposed after the class split, Core getting up to speed with a new piece of kit, a combination of some or all of those factors or something else? And you'll appreciate the reason I ask this is that, of course, Michael sent this in the wake of what was not a glorious performance at Watkins Glen. Uh, but we're recording this part of the show actually just, what, an hour or two after 
Colin Brown set pole position at CTMP. New track record. Yeah. Well, I would just throw this in as the main thing that comes to mind. I can't claim that it's accurate. I do know that our good friend Jeff Brown, who happens to engineer this vehicle, is on our show every week leading off inside the sports car paddock, of which we have a special edition coming here, thanks to Mr. Goodwin, who has just captured some amazing stuff for us. I would say that if there were no change in tire vendor from 2018 to 2019 and the core autosport team did nothing other than head down to extreme speed motorsports, whisk everything into their transporters, go home and then just continue racing the cars on continental tires. I think we would have seen this team far more competitive in their debut season with this Nissan on-rope DPI. The fact that we have Jeff, whose talent is without question, but Jeff, who's having to learn a new vehicle, although the uh, the Liget itself is not something that I think is too far out of his realm of grasp, but just from an aerodynamic standpoint, engine standpoint, uh, this is just something that is would take a while for him to grasp and master. But in particular the shift from Continentals to Michelins on top of having to learn a brand new car. I think we could say both are pretty heavy contributors to the team not being bang on the pace like we saw ESM throughout you know the entire time that they were able to run the cars and be in the sport. So I think it's really between those two that things stand out. What we did see last weekend was the car seemed to not be in the happiest place not a surprise though that going to ctmp aka mo sport where they were absolute rock stars last year in the spec lmp2 areca 07 gibson not a surprise to see that now after a little bit over a half season of running the car graham on another high speed flowing track coming off of watkins Glen, where it seemed like things they certainly found out the directions to not go. I would say it's maybe not a total shocker that rolling in just a matter of days later to CTMP where they rocked the place last year, Jeff was able to say, all right, <laughs> we have crossed off all the things we know we're not doing. It's left us in a fairly predefined direction to go in a positive way. And here they are really, really, really fast with a new lap record in hand in qualifying trim at least last thing just to close here quickly is we saw last year they ran team owner slash driver john bennett to open the race i believe colin chucked that areca on pole last year they decided to start uh, john which threw them to the back of the prototype class and uh, obviously john did his best to hang on colin climbed in and then just drove through the field I don't know if they're going to do the same thing, but it wouldn't surprise me if we learned that tomorrow morning. That's exactly what they did to try and recreate this formula that they, that they use, Graham, to uh, obviously win and have some great success there. Where I think there could be a little hitch in the step, though, is everything I know about that Areca 07, just from a friendliness, especially for a gentleman driver like John, it's set up window of happiness pretty darn big meaning gentlemen drivers 
gentlewoman drivers can climb into an 07 and be very quick and not feel as if they are having to push their comfort zone beyond any reasonable expectation. The thing I've heard about the Nissan Enroque DPI from Liger, more or less from the outset, and it's improved since its debut, but the thing I've heard by and large is its setup window much narrower, and when you have a car that is not feeling super comfy at all times, and to get the most performance out of it might involve you having to do some personal heroics to get it there. You really have to say, all right, man, I'm really not confident this car is going to be pointed uh, in the right direction when I exit this corner in order to make the speed I need to. That's where we find the real limitations for gentlemen and gentlewoman drivers. And so I think that's the only thing, Graham, that might conspire against the team repeating tomorrow in their you know in their quest for victory with a Nissan Enroque DPI compared to the Eureka 07 that they had last year. So that's the only only thing that quote worries me is will John Bennett feel as if he can push as hard as he needs to for them to succeed with this car knowing that the previous model they had the Spec LMP2 was one where he could go out and for him drive really hard and never feel overly threatened by the vehicle. Good stuff. Uh, let's go in a different direction. Penske. John Foreman uh, from Twitter says, hey, guys, M's a question. Why does Team Penske run Acura's Honda in DPI when they've got a relationship with Chevy from IndyCar? Would, I assume, be drawn towards the Cadillacs? Guessing this may have been addressed when the Acura debuted. Love the podcast. Thank you very much for that. Most, most welcome. Thanks for the question. It's a very straightforward one. It's who pays the bills. Uh, Roger Penske came into the sport as a sports car driver, loves sports cars, has always loved sports cars. The team's history, his history running everything from Porsche 917s to RS Spiders to you name it. Big, illustrious history. In every instance, it has involved someone paying for the pleasure of having Team Penske to facilitate those programs. And what we have here is a dynamic where Acura, in search of a partner to do so, went out and spoke with a lot of teams and ended up with Team Penske as their choice of who to run the uh, debut in this three-year contract. Uh, I guess you could call it opening foray into DPI for three years with the Acura ARX 05. So just... A little other side note of interest, Roger Penske does indeed have a relationship with Chevy and IndyCar, but uh, it's not a, quote, relationship. The company that builds Chevrolet's IndyCar engines is a company he founded. (laughs) So, Ilmore Engineering, uh, co-founded, I should say, uh, co-founded with Paul Morgan and Mario Ilian back in 1985, 86 or so. Uh, the company that provides engines that builds them on behalf contracted by Chevrolet, that is Rogers company. So definitely a relationship there. Just trying to expand the knowledge a little bit that it's not just a relationship. His company is hired by Chevrolet to make those engines. So it's truly a, a deeply embedded relationship. That company has also built IndyCar engines for Mercedes Benz, uh, they have, there's been a lot of 
service and work done on behalf of manufacturers uh, by Elmore. But the very simple truth here is Cadillac with uh, the GM racing, Chevrolet racing angle there. Although they have a couple of teams, Graham, that we know for a fact are or have been factory or semi works, some sort of relationship. Uh, We also know that dynamically, we do not have the same type of program between a Cadillac and an Acura, meaning Cadillac has wanted to spread their finances and support around to a few key partners. This now being Action Express Racing and Wayne Taylor Racing. At the beginning, we had Spirit of Daytona involved there as well. Now gone to a slightly different dynamic where it's AXR and WTR. There are a couple of Uh, customer teams that are in there too which are great they're helping to subsidize and pay for things and offset costs for the uh, cadillac racing program but it is not a dynamic of general motors writing big old checks for action express and wayne taylor racing to be on the grid therefore that would not fit for team penske simple as that so with acura it is writing big check covering everything, hiring the team. It's 100% coming out of Acura slash Honda's pocket. That's the business model that works for Team Penske. Has always been their threshold, Graham. Hey, why don't they go to Le Mans? Doesn't Penske want to get back? Doesn't, don't they want to go to Le Mans and race something? They absolutely do. Just have to identify who's going to pay for it. Who is absolutely going to right. spend the money to take. Again, could it be an Acura? Could it be? Who knows? Roger Penske does not race unless someone is paying for it. It is a business. It is treated like a business. On the IndyCar side, I do know that he comes out of pocket a little bit to you know, fill in some funding gaps. But if this were a case where he had to pay for the entire IndyCar program, it would not be in the NTT IndyCar series whatsoever. So just a very different dynamic here of what the team looks for. And another thing that's interesting, and we're not going to, park the question and delve into this uh, really just we'll throw this out and maybe it's a topic for next week or the weeks after Graham but we're going to finish finish up the second year of the accurate and team Penske relationship here we have one more year to go in that relationship Acura has been forthright in saying we have no intent of selling customer cars will be interesting to see what happens at the end of 2020 whether they decide to stay with team Penske move to a different vendor um, stay with Penske and open up the books to allow one or two additional Acuras to be used. If someone wanted to pay for that privilege again, but also being governed a little bit by the, and Hey, in 22, we have a new formula coming, so we'll have to see, but uh, I've rumors. This has been a very expensive, very expensive endeavor. Expensive doesn't mean bad, just means no doubt there has been some serious investment uh, to make these Air X05s go round and around from race to race. Curious, Graham, if like Cadillac, allowing uh, both the JDC Miller Motorsports team, Hunkos Racing and such, adding a few more cars to the stable, a few more sales of spare parts, uh, the engine leases and just in general, uh, maybe engineering contracts for engineering support. 
not talking crazy amounts of money coming in, but at least helping to reduce the overall annual expenditure by Cadillac Racing. Just curious if, as we look towards the very short-term future with the Acura effort, if there might be a willingness or desire to say, huh, want to keep doing this, wonder if we should open up the books a little bit, and if by doing that we might actually reduce our annual outlay financially just enough to make things a little bit more palatable. Move on. It's actually another uh, Acura-related question. It's actually to do with the GTD win, Mike Shank and his merry men and women. Uh, and the Seneca Lodge. Uh, Mike Shank and his team celebrated their GTD win at the Seneca Lodge bar, it seems. Seems to be a traditional activity. What's the story? I went there for the first time last year. Amazing place. Uh, one of those wonderful parts of, well, you know, motorsport folklore. You're just going to go and do it. As I understand it, and I don't know if it's 100% correct or 0% correct, but at least from my very informal knowledge, it's just been a case of that has been the the thing that's been done, I believe, dating back to the 60s. I have some sort of recollection of Formula One there and wins there and the wreath being uh, brought down to and placed there. Know that the local town of Corning uh, home of the Corningware Glass uh, company and such that I guess was a fairly big thing in the United States for decades. But Corning has grown a bit. I think you'll see a lot of teams stay in and around Corning because there are a number of hotels that have come up. There's a little mini mall. Uh, there's some chain restaurants and such. And this is in a region of New York, upstate New York, where lots of beautiful nature not a lot of civilization that has been set down. So we get a lot of people that stay currently when they go for an IMSA race, NASCAR, whatever, in and around Corning. But the place where the Seneca Lodge happens to be is really old school downtown Watkins Glen. And this is where a really rich, <laughs> a rich area of old school, old timey um, racing existence happens to be so whether it's a seneca lodge or just some of the little shops little restaurants little ice cream places and such these are the places where heroes and legends of the sport have gone for decades and decades so i think i'm guessing that knowing that this is uh, but definitely was a much greater hub for all those who came into town i think that this was just really where everyone was at therefore it's where everyone congregated after the race and uh, we would have such a tradition like this to take off, Graham. Again, no, nowadays, me, more folks tend to stay elsewhere, but this is still, thankfully, a tradition that takes place. I mean, to, to, to add a little bit of detail, I mean, uh, to give an idea of the history there, uh, even for the Formula One days, the, 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 the Laurel Reeves from Jackie Stewart, Emerson Fittipaldi, uh, Carlos Reutemann, my uh, hero, Ronnie Peterson, uh, Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, they're on the wall there. The, the actual Laurel Reeves are on the wall there. There's a huge amount of history there, and it is just one of those places that if you're going to that track, you should just take the time and go along and have a cooling adult beverage. It's as simple as that. Let's push on. Um, 
Ryan Casillas from uh, Facebook says, Marshall and Graham, how long did it take you to collect your breath after Saturday? This is Watkins Glen's Michelin Pilot Challenge race. I'll, I'll answer that one if you don't mind, actually, MP, because I, I watched it from start to finish. Um, I thought the earlier part of the race had a very high quotient of asshattery involved. It wasn't a very sensible way for a number of the drivers involved to run uh, effectively an endurance race, four-hour race uh, at Watkins Glen. The end of the race, uh, where we got that fantastic combination of, you know, short, sharp rainfall uh, that went on a bit longer and a bit harder, I think, than most people expected it would, which meant you had the choice of tippy-toeing through and hoping the, ca- the t- track would dry or throwing the dice and coming in and going for wet weather tyres, but knowing that if it dried, you were basically a sitting duck, and it did dry, and then we got this, and we got that. Throw into the mix um, some weird and wonderful stuff going on with particular Honda TCR Michelin tyres, thrown above that, uh, some superb wheel-to-wheel racing. It was a real endurance race, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, there'd be a few drivers, and I'm sure their team, Uh, owners going away and thinking was that the smartest way to approach for our race but it did make for engaging viewing i can tell you that for for one thing uh my only concern about the michelin pilot challenge and this has been the same for a couple of years now is it does make for great tv uh it also does look to me that a uh series that counts on you know the the low running costs of tcr and gt4 uh, cars needs to be very careful that we don't end up with so much damage involved uh, that actually some of those teams find that their budgets are beginning to run out before we get to the season's end. Great racing, some really good driving, but sometimes I think one or two of the, the guys involved need to cool their jets just a little bit. Let's wait and see how the two-hour encounter at Canadian Time Motorsport Park that's going to get underway in just a few hours' time uh, comes out the mix. That's my take on it. Yeah, I cannot disagree i didn't catch the entirety of the race but certainly the fun finish of the wet versus dry versus rain tire versus slicks that i mean look that's always a recipe for awesomeness especially when it comes at the end of a endurance race so yeah uh but to graham's point driving standards Uh, you look at a series like the michelin pilot challenge you look at heck i mean elms for example you can look at many preparatory series and you would hope that many of those participating in those series would think about it as a preparatory series others i think might view it as If I don't do something big and giant to get noticed, then my career chances are shot compared to, hey, maybe I can go and not make an ass out of myself and get on the podium a lot and be consistent and win. And if I can win a title, great. But if not, gain recognition through excellence and good manners. Then you have others maybe who believe that if I am not on everybody's tongue at the end of the event and I'm not, you know, on every social media channel with video clips of this crazy daring pass I'm going to try, then that's my one and only way to get recognized. And I get it. 
we live in a time where, I mean, uh, Instagram to me on the topic of just racing teams has become a fascinating thing, especially changes that I've seen in 2019 alone. And even formula one level, Graham, the amount of video content being churned out from McLaren and Mercedes and up and down all kind of not just behind the scenes, but look at this crazy thing we're going to try and do. And here's some extreme stuff that we're going to do and all trying to just wave shiny objects, jangle the keys in front of the baby to get its attention. It, It extends so far now that part of me wonders, and this is just maybe more of a societal comment. Part of me wonders if the, Hey, this Michelin pilot challenge series name some of the other ones where I need to show that I am a pro can be a pro worth hiring or really good am you want to consider as your silver coming into a GTD or LMP2 or something like that I just think that maybe for some there's a belief that boy if I don't end the weekend with some sort of amazing clip to show and capture people's attention and dazzle them with something that I did jangle the keys in front of them, then I have failed. I just wonder if that is creeping in a little bit too much and comes back to your point of costs. And if you're taking these high risk moves to try and get recognized and you pull it off. Amazing. I can tell you though, (laughs) knowing I believe every single team owner, and I'll just stick with uh, IMSA's WeatherTech sports car championship knowing every single team owner in that paddock and the team managers and the people who make decisions on who to hire and who not to hire, they're not looking to Instagram. They are not looking to, whoa, that's amazing. They might, they might love seeing it if you pull it off, but they're also going to do their due diligence and see, oh, that's cool. You had 10 races and you had three of those big highlights. And yeah, the other five where you wadded the thing up or ripped the, the fender off or smashed into the other guy. Yeah. So we're actually the three that were cool. Thanks for making those. Those were fun. My kids loved them. The other five that you didn't post because you wouldn't want to embarrass yourself. Those are the reasons why you're not getting a call. Yep. I think that's entirely right. It is done remorselessly, viciously based on the numbers, the data, what did you do with what you had? What did you achieve with what you had? Did you bring it home? Did you play the team game? You know, not just what did you do, what did you do for the team? And that's the way that's the way it is, I'm afraid, in the modern world, in particular in sports car racing, where it very much is a team game. So let's wait and see. Can, I, can I suggest a, a closing IMSA question to throw my way? Go that, for it. That being the one from Steve Lawrence. And in terms of throwing it my way, I'll throw it at myself. Go for um, it. So let's close imps on this, Graham. And I actually wanted to touch on this. And so thanks for sending it in, Steve. It says, hi, gents. I'm surprised no one wrote in about the IMSA television coverage, referring to Watkins Glen. Believe it or not, this is my condensed rant. Watkins should have been 100% televised. At least for me in the Tampa Bay area, CNBC aired infomercials the entire time the race was occurring and was very unfortunate that NASCAR went long and bumped the majority of the three hours of delayed TV coverage. Uh, That is no one's fault, and I appreciate that NBC Sports cut into Barrett-Jackson coverage to show the race in its entirety, but that is difficult for someone to capture on a DVR. So I actually DVR'd the race Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern 
To my dismay, when trying to watch the race after work Monday night, the first 30 minutes was some volleyball game. Also, the three hours of coverage aired was just the last half of the race. Is that what fans expect from delayed coverage? Another annoyance was IMSA published the Watkins Glen qualifying on their YouTube page slightly before the NBC Sports app started streaming the beginning of the race. IMSA leadership often talks about growing our sport, but I feel many times their decisions just look like more of the same to me. And has something changed recently at NBC Sports? Something seems different. Nothing to do with the on-air talent. Maybe something behind the scenes. Something just seems off to me. Uh, anywho, to end this rant on a positive note, I want to say congratulations to Mazda Team Yos and John Doonan. I drank some chocolate milk to celebrate with them in spirit. So the reason I wanted to close on this, Graham, and this is not pushing back on Steve. This is not you know taking anyone to task or saying anything negative. This is just a an adjustment I would implore whether it's some of our listeners or just IMSA fans in general, racing fans too, possibly. So knowing that the six-hour race, the Salem's six hours at the Glen, was not going to be aired live on NBC, CNBC, NBC Sports, anything. It was not aired live, nor was it going to be aired in its entirety live. Also knowing, Graham, that it was a long delay. Uh, the end, let's see, from when the race ended, I think there was something like a three hour wait for the second half of the race to be broadcast. So it was this really kind of weird time crunch. Again, NASCAR was on track. There's a lot of priorities being placed where they should be. NASCAR is far more popular. I wouldn't expect IMSA to be placed ahead of it, but having seen all this, Hey, all right, well, I like watching motor races. I may have a job that involves knowing what happens i should probably watch it when it happens that means that before i went to bed uh saturday night i knew that when i got up sunday whether it was on my phone on my desktop here or just simply sitting out in the living room i would be streaming this race live knew it from knew it well before the race started looking at how the tv angle was a little bit wonky so as someone who wants to watch live racing i knew that the nbc sports app was going to be my ticket to watch the six hours of the Glen. that's exactly what i did and so between a variety of things whether it was using my phone or being able to watch a little bit in front of the uh, sitting on the couch using a live streaming app that's just an adjustment that i have made uh, almost completely this year, Graham, with many racing series. IndyCar is another thing that I cover. Uh, I've had to pay, and I don't mind paying, it's about $50, uh, pay for the NBC, now what is it, Gold Plus or something along those lines. Uh, had to pay for NBC Gold, uh, the IndyCar package, so that although it was offered free, on YouTube or IndyCar's timing and scoring page through the end of the 2018 season, well, with NBC taking over as the sole service provider for 2019, free is no longer free. So in order to watch a practice session, if I'm not at an event, uh, everything, I believe, other than the race, the races are not available 
getting on the NBC Gold streaming package. But I've paid the 50 bucks, got the app on my phone. Uh, it's, again, I have it on everything. Everything that has a screen in the house, more or less, I have the ability to tune in and watch IndyCar. And then when it comes time for the racing, obviously I know that that is something I would need to DVR. Just share here, Steve, that provided you are able, uh, being able to kind of sort of dismiss uh, the linear coverage and having to DVR it that way, uh, in the instance of these longer races where we really don't expect to get flag-to-flag coverage on a single channel for the entire 6, 10, 12, or 24 hours, would just say that folks in general shifting a mindset to NBC Sports app is going to be my friend. If you like IMSA, use it, period, end of statement. And I don't can't say exactly when the full broadcast then becomes available on the app for those who weren't able to watch it live. And I guess we could call that, Graham, the equivalent of a, a streaming DVR recording. Uh, not something that you would manually have to do, but be able to come back and say, oh, wasn't able to do it, but now I do want to watch the thing in full. I don't know the exact timing of when that becomes available on the app. I haven't had to do that yet, but it was frustrating for me to see so many people uh, just vastly frustrated during and after Watkins Glen, all centered from linear TV being a crutch or limitation. And so I guess, again, my only take-home message here is knowing that uh, the app is something that everyone in the States, at least, should be able to readily download, use, and whatnot, would just say that remove those things that frustrate you and start shifting the mindset towards streaming. Streaming you can do sitting on your same couch at home. I tend to agree with you. I have to tell you, um, we had a bit of a clear out of household expenditure fairly recently and one of those was the sports channels that uh, had the tv i know no i don't think i watch any sports on tv at all now it's also a, a conversation i've had pretty repeatedly with significant players in the sport, both on both sides of the atlantic about uh, the debate that we have about uh, a tv deal and there is a reality now that actually yeah, TV is still important, but it's getting less and less and less and less important remarkably quickly from the point where maybe three to five years ago, that was not just a debating point. It was a point of pointed criticism for a championship, not able to achieve that. Now, if you've actually got a high-quality streaming product, and in particular if you can deliver that high-quality streaming product free to view, then frankly that is the bigger that's the bigger plus. Uh, you know, you, uh, you, you, our listeners, I know, will know that I'm involved with a couple of championships where we do have that. We have uh, free to view streaming for the European Le Mans series, uh, for instance. What I'm particularly thinking of is the Asia Le Mans series. We started with literally one webcam. Uh, my involvement with the Asia Le Mans series started at that point. I basically had offered a deal whereby I would go uh, to work on behalf of my company, uh, but but uh, to offer some added value to those that were going to cover a travel budget for me. And while I was there and there wasn't a lot happening other than a race, um, I actually said, look, if you've got anything I can talk to. And we did that with one webcam and it got viewers. And that led to the championship deciding to invest. And now what we've got is, you know, a free to view package that is delivering 
really big numbers worldwide. I think it's a lesson to a lot of uh, organizations that it's not a massive amount of money if audience and the uh, return on investment for that audience is important to your product. Let's wait and see. It For me, Graham, is a case of turning on the television, hitting the input button on the TV's remote, thumbing over from, uh, we have Comcast here in the Bay Area, just simply switching from Comcast to Amazon Fire, uh, the little Amazon Fire stick, a uh, little streaming portal, if you want to call it that. And once on the Amazon portal, it has all of the various streaming app options for me to choose from. And so whether it's Netflix, whether it's the NBC Sports, whether it's ESPN, um, you know, tonight uh, when I get back from the hospital, I'll be watching UFC 239 pay-per-view. I've already paid for it. Had to go online and pay for it. Um, but I'll be doing that through the ESPN Plus app. And it takes an extra 30 seconds to one minute of my life to sit you know, after sitting down, turn on the TV, change the channel input, go over to the fire, tab down and find whichever streaming solution it is that I want for the thing that I'm about to watch. Go there, and I mean, again, it's adding one minute to one's life, but removing all the frustration of, what the hell is this infomercial? Why am I not seeing racing, and where is this? Or here's the other thing, and I'm not saying it's 100% perfect, but when you do get a NASCAR ran late, or there's a rain delay that's pushed or messed up the TV schedule, the, the linear broadcast schedule, See this happen with IndyCar sometimes where, hey, it was supposed to be on channel 723 at 2 p.m. And it's 2 p.m. and it's not there. What the hell? And you find out, oh, well, because of a variety of reasons that you weren't there to see because you weren't planning to watch until 2, it's been knocked over to another channel. You know, 768 is one of the other NBC channels that gets used sometimes when they have to bump sports programming. But unless you go online, unless you go to social media and maybe you're able to parse that out somewhere, you just get folks to sit down and basically say, what the hell? Where's the thing you said it would be, but it's not. So whilst live streaming is not always the answer, it doesn't always remove the thorn from your paw. It is becoming the thing where I just say, you know what, man, <laughs> the heck with being frustrated by whatever is going on in the land of linear. I'm just going to go streaming yep. whenever possible because i can control that and it's seemingly always on demand so with that said in terms of being on demand you graham goodwin are now the man in high demand as we switch from imsa to weck aslam elms aco also known as <laughs> wc asian Le Mans series elms and the aco we're going to kick this off we don't have a ton of questions but that's okay it's been a little while since we had one of them uh, races there to talk about but we do have plenty of news Stephen gate says monday's daily sportscar.com article suggested there's a potential for a future bentley hypercar project however the lead commentator on the official nurburgring 24 coverage was more certain and said that brian gush the uh, director of motorsport there at bentley was taking a hypercar prototype proposal to the board last week thoughts on this graham uh, I spoke to Brian. I spoke to Brian uh, directly. In fact, I think I interviewed him for Inside the Sports Car Paddock in what? the fringes of. Yeah, I think we ran this interview uh, in the fringes of 
um, the ACO press conference. Brian has long had his eyes on uh, a prototype program. Uh, listeners with longer memories than others might remember that they did look at DPI. There was indeed a Janetta LMP3 car with a Bentley engine uh, in the back of it as a mule for a potential um, development program for DPI. Not to say that was what they would use. It was just something they could get with prototype on it. I have seen um, confidentially uh, pictures of a Bentley styling program for DPI. Uh, is Brian interested in uh, taking Bentley to Hypercar? Well, whatever happens, it won't be Brian taking them there because the Spa 24 hours this year will be Brian's final race uh, at the helm of the Bentley Motorsports uh, side of things. He's been stepping back and stepping back and stepping back for some little time now. Uh, but boy, oh boy, has he done a great job of persuading Bentley to stay on uh, on mission with motorsport. Did he take some of the board? I've no idea, is the honest answer. I've no idea. I would be very surprised indeed if it was anything other than a philosophical, is this something you would like us to progress uh, pro- uh, program? Um, I'm absolutely aware that there are people within VAG. And remember, VAG covers a whole lot of brands. It covers uh, Audi. They won't be doing it. It covers Lamborghini. I don't think they'll be doing it. It covers Porsche. I think they might well be doing it, uh, you know, in a year or two or beyond. But um, whatever happens, the good news here is that we have got brands beginning to look at mainstream endurance prototype motorsport again whether or not that's dpi 2.0 or indeed earlier uh, or whether or not it is hypercar or whatever comes later we are getting to the stage where people are beginning to turn around and say we're looking for something that gives us marketing value the game plan now is very simple make sure they get value uh, and everything has got a part to play there. The technology that's employed, um, the ability to regulate the sports and to give close racing, the quality, the standard, the placements of the events that are involved. Um, all of those good things, uh, you know, that's why the rule makers are the important part of this. But yes, it does need good people in the industry to look beyond the noses and look beyond the ridiculous influences um, and into something that's real, something that will put thousands of people on a spectator bank. And we would hope uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of people at the other end of you know, a TV or an online broadcast. That's what's going to make the difference. Whether or not there was uh, an outline discussion or a specific program for Bentley doesn't matter. What does matter is if you've got people like Brian Gush, like John Doonan, are going to have the courage of their convictions, the intelligence to deliver a meaningful plan to people at board level and argue that case. That's what matters. I like you, Graham Goodwin. You know things. (laughs) We're going to stick with Stephen, who sent in two questions. He says, rumors still abound that the European arm of Yoast have been working on a project for some months now. Do we know if this revolves around the WEC? If so, is it hypercar related? And will it be aligned to the Volkswagen Audi group given their history together? I think the honest answer is they're rumors. It's the straight answer. I've got nothing to tell you uh, with specificity, if that's still a word. Um, It's it's pronounced specificity. 
blah, 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 blah. Um, but I've nothing to tell you with certainty about what Ranel Yost and uh, Ralphie Yutner and the rest of the, the gang are up to. There's clearly been a period of, how can we put this, transition from uh, the Audi programs, transition into, through, and by the look of things, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, out of the, uh, the Mazda program. And the reality is that, look, we hope they do come back. They're a fabulous bunch of people. Uh, but, you know, I think what everybody has learned from the Mazda uh, program is there's no magic wand. You've got to get everything right. And whilst it would be unfair to point the finger at used and say used failed there, it certainly would be relevant to say that they were not the magic bullet. The magic bullet is very simple and very difficult. The magic bullet is root and branch. Absolutely everything has to be right because if you want to throw yourself into the bear pit of top-line, multiple factory prototype racing, you can be sure that either your weakness is going to find, uh, find, uh, find you out for yourself or the opposition will find those weaknesses and exploit it. Uh, that's not a, uh, a, a burn on uh, on Yoast. On it's just a point to say is just employing a company to do uh, to undertake a part of your program is not going to be enough to cover over the weaknesses and the overall package. Just occurred to me hearing Reinhold Yoast's and Ralph Utner's names mentioned that Reinhold's just a very majestic first name. It made me think as well that if you were to swap names, Reinhold Utner, I mean, that sounds just as majestic, but, and apologies to our pal Ralph, you'd switch that around to Ralph Yost, and that sounds Sounds kind of like, like it sounds like a guy who's changing brakes on Opals in a small shop somewhere in Luxembourg. I think think it sounds like a kind of quite generic aftershave. Ooh, that's right. Long day at the office little bit of stubble you need to take care of before heading out to meet your dear beloved lady. Apply a wee bit of Ralph, Ralph Yost. Yost. That's right. A uh, Don't wander into the hinterlands without a dash of Ralph Yost. All right. We're going to go to Alex Gold, who says, Gray Ham, can you see a possible TVR hypercar coming with the many links between TVR, Rebellion, Areca, and Gordon Murray already existing? and indicating they're looking into it. Well, uh, the, the straight answer is TVR are going to have to produce a workable uh, production schedule for their road car before they start thinking about hypercars, and what? that's been something they've been struggling with. The, brand, the, the issue for Rebellion was just branding, without a shadow of a doubt. That is about brand awareness. That's perfectly valid, but the reality is that we are yet to see a workable production schedule for the gorgeous Griffith uh, that's emerged from... Uh, the new company that's behind, you know, what is her name, TVR? I've got a huge amount of, of um, affection for that brand, but I don't see that coming anytime soon. I do see probably one rebellion in the 2019-2020 uh, FI World Endurance Championship. I think they are struggling through the commercial realities of two-car effort. Um, I would not be remotely surprised to see just one car for the full season and maybe one car doing uh, race by race. We'll wait and see whether or not that's correct or otherwise. Um, Beyond that, TVR, will we see them in top line 
um, sports car racing. The real reality is, if Les Edgar and his backers at TVR were interested enough to put the name on a, an LMP1 car, you know, Les has been involved in a whole host of programs down through the years. Now, I might be shot down in flames by the listeners, but many of you guys will remember the Celine S7, S7R. I'm pretty certain that the genesis of that car was a mid-engined Aston Martin race car that Les Edgar was involved with uh, through RML back in the day. His interest in um, in racing goes back the better part of two decades in, in you know, real-world terms. Hope they can pull something together. TVR is a worthy name to have up there in the spotlights. Um, you know, in the as you were saying earlier, the Instagram generation, whether or not they get enough kind of um, time in the spotlights to get that project to the stage where it sells in enough numbers to be commercially viable, let alone to invest in motorsport to bolster that, I think remains to be seen. I do not expect immediately to see the TVR name emerging as a real-world brand in hypercar or, frankly, right now, anywhere else. Any truth to the rumor that TVR stands for tacos and Vegemite racing? No, it doesn't, and I think you know what it stands for. Trevor. It is true. Oh, yeah. TVR is a, is is uh, is a contraction of the first name of the guy who actually um, established the brand, Trevor. That's what TVR is. It doesn't stand for anything. It is Trevor. I guess we're glad that Andrew's <laughs> name wasn't Hermione because I'm not sure how you would contract. Although Hermione does sound like something you can contract. Wear a condom. It just does sound like something you need, need, need to have ointment applied for, doesn't it? There you go. Uh, you know, I would say we've spun off the rails. We were never on them. That would be a big lie. A big, <laughs> big lie. Uh, let's go to our pal, Ryan Terpstra, who is always filling in our questions with some great stuff each week. Says, if targets for hyper protocar are met in the current LMP1 privateers are grandfathered in for a year, how do they dial back the current cars? And then why not invite DPIs at that point? Um, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, points at which you could decide you're going to throw the uh, the doors open. I might have heard my view on this show time and time again that I think they probably should as an interim. I think that finding out whether or not something's practical is a good way to find out whether or not that's a door you should open or door you should close. But um, let's let's deal with the... Uh, the the case in point here. Weight is certainly something you could apply. Air restrictors are certainly something you could apply. Um, I'm hoping that the smart guys behind uh, the rules have been smart enough to talk to the smart guys behind the design of these uh, LMP1 prototypes and find out what would be required to shave, let's say, 15 seconds off their uh, race pace. I hope they've done that because that's no small thing. Um, it's not going to be just a matter of putting a fat bloke like me in the driving seat. That would shave a damn sight more than 15 seconds, I could tell you, but it would increase your, increase your parts bill uh, exponentially. Uh, the answer here is we definitely are going to see these cars grandfather for year one, so there's going to have to be a plan. We know that uh, already that hypercar is a BOP formula, and again, well, as I've said before on the show, my view is that's been communicated incorrectly. I think there are going to be four subclasses as possible ways in. 
One is the grandfathered LMP1. One, as we've heard from both Jim Glickenhouse and from Toyota, is going to be the prototype-based hypercar. One is going to be the road car-based hypercar. Think something like a Pagani or a Koenigsegg. Whether or not we see any of those racing remains to be seen. Fourth is the Aston Martin Valkyrie. Why do I make that as a fourth? Because it's like nothing else that is out there right now. I'm recording this portion of the show having just been uh, for two days at the Goodwood Festival of Speed um, launching a new Audi race car, which I know there's a question about later. Um, And it struck me as I watched a parade of supercars and hypercars coming by what a lot of nonsense there is there there are some that are made to be beautiful there are some that are made to be absolutely in your face there's some that look to be rocket ship quick in a straight line but i wouldn't trust them to turn into my drive let alone uh you know in extremists on a race circuit i think there are going to be some lessons learned not just by the rule makers but by the people engineering some of those hypercars as to what real speed is there we go let's see where shall we wander next hey there is a right turn lover here is dpi 2.0 at le mans and car car at daytona still a possible or likely thing this is not sure how that would work pace wise at daytona i expect car cars to be rather low in downforce by comparison i i hope it's doable i truly do uh i think you know, I'm a, a romantic at heart about the sport, um, and I, I truly hope we can get to the stage where there are at least a couple of events a year, and Daytona and Le Mans are the obvious candidates, where you, you truly could have a gathering of the clans. I'd love to see that happen. Am I confident? No, I'm not confident. Do I think there's still a possibility? Yes. Do I think some people would need to shift from established and pretty fixed positions to make that a, 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 a real thing? Yes, I do. Um, I, I, I just hope we can make it happen because I think that would be something, at least of those two events, that would break sports car racing out from a bubble into something that is truly globally marketable, uh, that you really would have every significant brand that is involved uh, at that kind of level potentially involved in that race the only problem you come into if you know if dpi is remains on the trajectory it's on at the moment which looks to be increasingly successful if hypercar can attract the brands that we believe it could and let's say that might be three or four big brands and one or two boutique brands you're going to struggle to find the space on the grid for everybody that has a realistic call to be there. And that's something that does need to be thought through because the last thing I want to see is, yes, it would be great to see the Aston Martin Valkyrie and Toyota's, uh, you know, uh, GR concept and let's say Porsche, let's say Ferrari at the front end of the grid, but then full season loyal competitors being told, sorry, guys, you're going to have to miss this one out uh, because everybody else is, world-class event is truly the the hinge on which um their commercial package rotates and that's something you've got to think about very carefully how big a grid can you safely support at two very great races and the little bit of acrimony involved with this graham and monsieur right turn lover 
we discussed right after Le Mans and on the specific topic of two different formulas, DPI and hypercar, is it possible to have them co-mingle at Le Mans, at Daytona, the breakdown of things, the two-faced thing that emerged right after the uh, Friday at Le Mans press conference, finalizing the rules, announcing things and whatnot. We discussed this, just mention it for those who didn't hear that in a recent episode of the Week in Sports Cars. The two sides, let's just call it the French side and the American side, had a meeting Thursday in Le Mans on this exact subject. Hey, okay, so we're going different paths, but let's try. Do we want to think about how we can have these cars play together at least at a, you know our respective biggest events? There was an absolute yes across the board, ACO, WEC, and IMSA. The method to do that, Graham, knowing that hypercar rules are they're defined, but we just knowing that there's going to be a lot of options involved, hybrid, non-hybrid, balance, BOP, etc. Also knowing that DPI 2.0, those rules aren't done. We don't even know what that's going to be. Is the overall horsepower number going to go up or down, downforce up and down? Again, a lot of things still undefined since we don't have either cars built and on track. The one central solution they came up with was well we think for the most part many of the hypercars are going to be hybrid and we are currently planning on the dpi front to be all hybrid so that could be the method in terms of equalizing cars so again not knowing whose total horsepower internal combustion plus electric horsepower will be higher or lower than uh, the other formula but this seems to be an area where if we are working and, and willing we can use hybrid power levels by increase or decrease to try and get the cars close enough that they could play. And so those parties left that meeting on Thursday with a belief that everyone was going to work together despite not having the any any details at all as to what it would be in finality when it actually would happen here in a couple of years. But there was an agreement there, and it all centered around adjusting hybrid power numbers and also when it came to finalizing hybrid numbers right what would be the potential maximum in imsa in terms of electric horsepower well again when we start getting to these final decisions as a group we're going to get together and make sure that we're keeping one another in range so we can balance these vehicles to play in daytona or Le Mans. then folks started talking <laughs> Friday morning at Le Mans or coming out of the press conference and a lot of the comments from the French basically said, no, we're just going to do our thing. And so there's a definite feeling on the American side, Graham, uh, and Monsieur right turn lover that Thursday's conversation was just a drastic waste of time simply because everything that was giving nods and yes, and sounds great work together, unity, happiness going to use, hybridization as the thing that helps us align these cars as best as possible to play together at least once a year was then shot down in print and poo-pooed by our friends at the ACO and WEC. So unless that changes and there's a true change of heart um, in France on that subject, Graham, I don't think this is going to happen. So uh, at least 
giving the American version the amount of times the ACO and the WC in the last three to four years uh, regarding prototypes have said words that hold no value that are just truly being said for reasons I don't fully understand. Why lie? Why say, oh, yeah, you bet. We're going to, oh, yeah, sure, uh uh-huh. Name the topic. Um, I don't know why that keeps happening. I also don't know why my friends at IMSA keep engaging on such things, knowing that, frankly, we're waiting for the first time for the French to not either lie or just break an agreement formal in formal or informal uh to just break ranks and decide to do their own thing so love to see it happen just history has told us that ain't gonna happen and with that said let's throw something <laughs> else at you mr goodwin uh let's do see it. we're gonna go to ian keyworth says think back to Le Mans 1994 Jochen Dower's Porsche 962 entered as a GT car, which was adapted from a Porsche 962 Group C car. What's the chance of this type of approach for hypercar? He also asks, are Dower even still around? And could they, or possibly would they want to try and make a Porsche 919 LMP1 and convert that into a road-going hypercar? Wouldn't that be exciting? I think we've killed Graham. Sorry, you've not. <laughs> Exciting is a great word for it. Bonkers is another one. Um, you couldn't with a 919, for starters. Uh, and the main th- reason for that is uh, it's the cockpit dimensions, amongst other things, which are significantly different for hypercar. But looking into what could you do, could you actually use some of the tech from some of the uh, the uh, prototype programs? Well, that's more or less what Toyota are doing. It's not dramatically different tech, albeit dialed down a bit from, you know, um, I don't know, what do we put it, F-35 to maybe Phantom um, to make the hypercar from the technology that's been used in the Toyota TSO 50. So I think it's a great idea. Um, it, it's it's oddly enough, I think it's, it's almost in the opposite direction. If you look at what Jim Glickenhaus is talking about, it's almost the opposite direction in that he's effectively producing a prototype from which you then build a road car uh, because Jim is looking to have the best of both worlds. He doesn't want to do it on a road-based car because I think he's smart enough to realize that that's probably not going to be the successful route for most people. Uh, what he's saying is build it to prototype rules, but then, to be blunt, if you want to invest in that vision, then you will take the compromise uh, that's involved in that and build those into your road cars. And you just have to have to accept for your road-going Glickenhaus 007 that you're going to have those compromises involved and that you're probably going to be talking about something that's extremely track-focused and not probably all that comfy to pop down to Walmart. Ah, good old Walmart. We've got a Walmart reference in here. I'm just I'm just sharing this, Graham. We're not too far away from the end of the show, and there's still a reference, a mandatory reference we need to wedge in somewhere. So we won't, oh, don't won't speak that it. name until it's time. I'm on it. I'm okay. on it. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Don Gregory, who says, why, in your opinion, compared to, I guess, someone else's opinion, uh, is Ferrari <laughs> and Porsche taking a wait-and-see approach to hypercar as both seem to be embracing hybrid technology? 
Well, okay, Ferrari, for starters, as Machiavellian as organization as Machiavelli himself, um, they will just wait and see. If they think there's something in it for them, it will revolve around uh, the, uh, the rules set for Formula One. If they believe there's something in it for them with the technology they've actually got, with keeping their own engineering and design talent uh, under their own roof, uh, it's going to revolve around two things. Can they do it for the budget and can they come in and win? If they don't believe that either of those two uh, are likely, I'm not going to say possible, then they simply won't be there. Uh, GTE Pro Plus, which was much kind of touted by others who should be a little more intelligent out there as being the thing that was going to happen, was frankly was pushed forward by the FIA as an attempt to get Ferrari to commit and effectively as a launch pad for the new regulations. Once it became clear that a few, if any, others would, would bite, then that went away and went away quite quickly. The other problem, of course, with GTE Pro Plus is it would have killed GTE Pro and probably GTLM within pretty short order after that. So that wasn't really going to be a way forward. Porsche, I think, are being a lot more savvy about it. They've got obviously long heritage at the top end of uh, sports prototype racing. They've had no little success with that. And they have told me, at a high level have told me, we're going to keep a weather eye on two factors. Can they actually manage a BOP process? Can they deliver what they say they can deliver for the budgets they say they can deliver it for? And if the answer is uh, yes to both questions, then why would we not come? And that, by the way, is a brand that I think you can almost be reassured they would find a route to continue with a GTE Pro effort as well. So I don't think we should be worried in that instance about GTE uh, going away from Porsche uh, if they do decide to come by hypercar. So I think for me, if I was a betting man right now and applying a percentage, I'd be looking north of 75% for Porsche and around the 50% or maybe a little less from Ferrari. Are they looking? Yes. Are they ready to commit right now? Not right now. Seems to be the Ferrari thing, though, doesn't it, Graham? If we're talking sports yeah. cars. If it's something that we can sell and sell a lot of, we'll do it. And we're going to charge silly amounts of money for our GT cars. Uh, it, it is more expensive to buy a Ferrari GT3 vehicle than it is a DPI. <laughs> oh, it is. It's a million dollar car. I mean, it's a million, it's a million dollar car. I mean, you know, I, uh, we've told, haven't we? It, it, it's, it's not just the car. It's what comes with the car. I've told it. I'll, I'll tell it again because it's a great story. This came to me from a long time Ferrari competitor uh, who's been involved in endurance racing with a variety of Ferrari GT cars for many years. And he said to me, wheel nuts, a wheel nut for a Ferrari GT car is 1,000 euros. The wheel nut, okay? The wheel nut is integral to the wheel. So it sits, it floats, if you like, within the wheel. So your investment in your wheel nuts is part of the wheel, which is clearly rather more than 1,000 euros a shot. To do a full season of racing, including Le Mans, the recommendation from the factory is that you should have 10 sets of wheels. 10 times four means that you, the Ferrari uh, racing Ferrari owner have got 40,000 euros tied up in wheel nuts for a season. Bonkers. 
like to announce that Pruitt Goodwin Motorsports will be going into knockoff Ferrari wheel nut manufacturing. We are only going to charge <laughs> 900 euros per. It's a, it's a steal. Right. It's a steal. Look at that. 10% off just because it's a knockoff. Maybe it should take longer than that. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, I think, are we down to our last? We are here. We're at our final Weck Aslam Elms ACO question. I believe this might be from a new listener, new question. And, of course, it's one for me to serve up to you. And his last name is one I know I'm going to murder. And as Excellent. someone who's known as the the last name assassin, I guess it's only fitting. So, Mark Keekley, Keckley, uh, something along those lines. Don't be afraid to. Kukla. Smith. Mark Smith. Uh, Mark, don't be afraid to send in a little note telling my monkey ass how to pronounce your name correctly, uh, as Matt Neidert has done perfectly. Uh, He says, for hypercars, not sure if this has been asked. Sometimes my brain shuts off when listening to podcasts. You and me, brother. You and me. But if there is a manufacturer, some other team that is committed to entering the second season of hypercar, would it be possible for this team to get an invite for Lamar ending the first season? That's a great question. It's a very good question indeed. Uh, and well done for a first question. The answer is it is possible. And the reason it's possible is because the Le Mans 24 hours, despite being part of an FI World Championship, is a standalone event. It is an invitational event. And the invitation is issued by an invitation committee uh, from the ACO. So, they would have to be persuaded, as I'm guessing with their partners in the WEC, the ACO, and for that matter, the other manufacturers involved, that it was in their interest to do so. My strong suspicion would be that they would not accept a car to debut at Le Mans, that they would expect them to come to at least one race before that. So in other words, it would be in, against the current um, calendar Spa or maybe even Sebring as well. So is it possible Yes. Is it likely? No. Uh, is it more possible with Spa and Le Mans? Yes. Is it likely? It's less likely. Um, am I hiding something? No. That's just the way it is. Uh, the, the way it is is that they don't like to see cars of any sort debut at the Le Mans 24 hours. That tends to actually have a rather uh, meaningful effect in terms of the, uh, the the company's investment in their product. They don't tend to go terribly far. And in terms of the, the, the uh, entertainment quotient for the event as well. And the, let's face it, are not a small number of worthy teams that have served their time. Uh, if we were talking about, let's say Ferrari said, we want to come with a two-car effort featuring our Formula One drivers, and a full factory effort launching a three-year program in the FIWC. But it's important that we'd hit the ground running by coming to Spa and Le Mans the year before. If it was me, I'd be a blinding idiot not to say yes, wouldn't I? Uh, But they would need a lot of reassurance that that was the real thing before they did it. Hashtag don't blinding under- idiot. I love it. I love it. <laughs> don't, 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 don't underestimate how tricky the FIA can be about their own regulations for an FI World Championship, as Multimatic have recently found to their cost. We are going to transition into Hegenerau, a.k.a. General, General, and I'm going to continue serving up 
to our man graham goodwin on the week in sports cars brought to you by cooper tires and the justice brothers this comes in from colin young when i watch sports cars i'm amazed at the access that the tv camera operators are allowed on pit lane they provide awesome close-up images but it sure looks like they can get in the way of the mechanics and pit crew do the tv people ever get grabbed and thrown out of the way oh yeah (laughs) yeah. sometimes by vehicles yeah, well, we have had one that was uh, a little while ago now, but it was one of the guys was clipped, wasn't he, by uh, an Audi. At Le Mans, one of, the, the one of my, I don't know his name, but we were Speed slash Fox colleagues. Yes, he uh, yeah. he was injured, seriously injured. He, yeah, he was indeed. And look, it's it's a, it's a bugbear. Um, you ask the photographers at Le Mans, they are unhappy that they do not feel as if they have an even hand dealt to them as do the uh, TV crews. So, for instance, you will note that on-air uh, pit, uh, pit talent do not wear helmets in pit lane, for instance. Um, that is something which is absolutely um, uh, essential equipment um, against the, the kind of – well, you will not get in pit lane without one if you're a photographer – um, yes, they have extremely good access. For the most part, you will have the live TV crews with a spotter, a guide. So in other words, it would be at least a three-person crew uh, if it's a, a TV camera with a reporter. So for instance, Louise Beckett from the FIWC would have a TV cameraman and someone to ensure that they are aware of what's going on around them because that's, these are very dangerous places to be indeed. Um, but yeah, I've seen, I'll use the same phrase as I used a little earlier uh, in the show. Have I seen some TV camera people uh, employ ass hattery? Yes, I have. Um, I've seen them do some blindingly stupid things, and I have seen at least one uh, TV reporter literally picked up and deposited some way further down uh, the order because he was he was literally kneeling down, crouching down, waiting for the car to actually arrive, but was 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 crouching down in front of the stop board. Absolutely insane. Um, my view, very simple, uh, and I've dealt with this directly with a number of championships. You don't just need um, a a briefing to be in the pit lane. You need a training program to be in the pit lane because it's an extraordinarily dangerous place to be. You know, pit lane fires make for great TV, also makes for toasty people. And you need to know where you can be, where you should be, and where you damn well shouldn't be. Um, don't touch the car. Don't touch the people. Make sure you're out the way. Make sure you're allowing other people to do their job properly. And most of all, be safe. I can share as someone who spends a lot of time on pit lane during any event that I'm at quite often over the wall as a photographer. There's usually one, maybe two instances a year, Graham, where I will have a pit crew member um, pull me aside a little bit, move me just a little bit. Not usually because I've failed to observe that their car is about to leave the pit box, but uh, usually by someone on a crew whose car is coming in, and for whatever reason, I haven't seen or noticed it. And so in those instances, I go through about 30 seconds of self-loathing and hatred because I hate that. I hate any even, again, and this is from... 
dozens upon dozens. I mean, probably 50 to 60, 70 times a year I'm on pit lane uh, during sessions and such. And so numerically, if it happens once, then you go, well, boy, that's a really small percentage. But still, I hate it. I hate that I'm on pit lane. I've failed to observe something that I should have. And there's a lot of little indicators if a car is going to pit. And I'm not talking about during a race, but just usually a practice session. But again, in a race environment as well, you can tell. So you're looking up and you're seeing pit crew over the wall. Or you're seeing the stop board out and being waved. Or there's a variety of things you can just look and see that, aha, they're preparing for a car to come in. At Indianapolis, for example, we have days upon days of practice. And so you hit practice opens at 11 a.m., ends at 6. <laughs> That's seven hours. And there are days where I spend almost seven hours on pit lane. And you think about the 33-plus cars uh, that are practicing. Again, not all at the same time, but just a lot of opportunities, a lot of things you're having to read constantly, listening for cars being started, a lot of indicators you're trying to glean information from to know what's going on. Should I walk through this pit box or not, etc. Nonetheless, there's still one or two times a year where I'm like, damn it, how did I miss that? Uh, and it's not even honestly a thought of my own safety. It's just not wanting to be that idiot who disrupts a team in their flow. So that's honestly, you know, that's a big part of things. Trying to be a good citizen, not trying to get in someone's way. It's very appreciated, though, when someone from a crew realizes, oh, hey, you know, idiot boy here, monkey boy with his eye stuck into the back of the camera, isn't aware that he could be hit in about five seconds. So let me just kind of pull him back two feet, and then he's clear. Got it. Thank you. Flip side is there are some crew members, and I'd say it's a extremely small percentage, Graham, who are of the mind that those who are not, mechanics do not belong on pit lane should not be there and so there are some who get fairly hostile because they think you are in their way just simply by existing even though you go to pretty great efforts to not be in their way there's just a bit of hostility period and i might have mentioned this before i think it was last year might have been during the roar before the 24th daytona where it's now i guess for the defunct p1 motorsports team the gtd team uh, i think i was standing in the pit box of uh one of the lmp2 teams taking some photos of something but one foot you know, as in the measurement of one foot into that p2 team's pit box and the p1 team uh was next and for whatever reason one of the crew members there felt that i was in his way even though their car was not on pit lane and was yelling at me while they were, again, it's very loud on pit lane at Daytona. And so there's a lot of noise going on. Again, I'm standing in the P2 pit stall, not in theirs, um, taking photos of something with my back turned. And I just hear this, this, I could barely hear it over the race cars going by, but this guy's just calling me seven kinds of a son of a bitch. That's fine. That's not uncommon. And I kind of turn around and look at him like, what are you, I have no idea what you're yelling about or what you're playing at, but there was nothing that I was doing that was impinging upon anything that they might do. Long story short, 
unlike the situations where I've been in the way and oblivious and someone kindly pulls me a foot or two out of the way for safety, I feel this person effectively try and spin me around uh, by the shoulder. And <laughs> I'm not a small guy. Uh, I, he didn't, he didn't spin me much cause you know, I have a little bit of gravitational pull, unfortunately. Um, and it just turned into a completely different scenario. And I'm just sharing this because why not tell stupid stories? This had nothing to do with Graham, with me being in the way, me being in a dangerous position. Uh, what this, what it turned out was this guy wanted to swing his leg across to go over the wall when it, when their car did come to pit lane, even though it wasn't on pit lane or nor was it coming to pit lane that I could see. And his preferred way of going over the wall involved effectively swinging his leg a foot or two into the P2 team's pit stall, which I have to admit, I don't really see much of that happening on pit lane. Teams usually contain themselves within their own in terms of going over and coming back. This guy just decided there was only one way he wanted to do it, not could do it, but wanted. There's only one way, and although I was not in his pit stall, I was just a nuisance, and I had to be moved. And so I feel this kind of shove to my shoulder to push me, turn me out of the way so he could felt like I had would have cleared the space for his, the arc of his leg to come over the wall. I learned all this afterwards. The only thing I knew at the time was I had my back turned to this team, wasn't in their pit box, their car wasn't on pit lane, and I'm looking up pit lane, staring at the front of this P2 car. Their car was nowhere near. All I know is I hear, turn around, this guy's tearing me apart, whatever. Could Really couldn't hear what he was saying other than the odd F this and such and such. And then all of a sudden I feel a pretty hearty push in the back from behind. And still not seeing the car, still not seeing anything that would lead to anything. <laughs> I did the thing that I try not to do because I try to be a nice guy, but I just turned around. I put down my camera and used some very choice four-letter words and said, look, let's go behind your pit box. Let's go behind here because if this is how you want to do things, you don't know me. You haven't asked, you haven't tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, pal, you know, uh, the way I like to do things is to go over this way. And I realize you're not in our pit box, but could you please? I might think that was weird, but I'd probably oblige. But the fact that you start things off by cursing me up and down, even though I couldn't really hear too much what you were saying, and then followed up with a push in the back, um, that to me stops being motor racing. <laughs> that is man and man. And so that's how I treat it. Like, so let's just stop playing like you know if you're a tough guy i want let's go behind and then i'm going to give you free reign to show me how tough you are Qu quick question was he was he american was he french american they're fine okay didn't have a hammer now that would have been fun because i would have <laughs> i would have sacrificed my ten thousand dollar whatever the hell it costs canon 1dx and use that as my Bushu's hammer emporium uh, implement of destruction uh but yeah anyway so again i apologize i don't know if i should apologize but you know i just to me it's like hey 
yeah, the TV folks can get in the way. They can be annoying. They do get adjusted or moved as needed. Same with photographers. I just find it a little funny when uh, on occasion you find these rock apes who just feel like, uh, man in way must move. If there's a reason I got it. If it's my mistake and I'm in truly, Hey, geez, I didn't realize guy. Hey, I appreciate that. But when you get these jackasses who just feel so entitled that they just want to start cursing you out <laughs> to start and then want to get physical, like all right man the, the whole premise hey, of us being here for a motor race just stopped this is this is now you and me and so it was kind of fun because after i think after the session however it was things quieted down a little bit and i finally so he could hear just made it very clear to him that that would never happen again and i don't think he liked hearing that and then he went over and told I guess his crew chief and then the crew chief came over and stood up, stood up for his guy. And Hey, you know, if, if my guy tells you to move, you move. And I told him to go have carnal knowledge with himself and said, I don't know what planet you live on, pal, but just because this jackass decided to start getting really aggressive, you think that's how I'm going to just submit and go, oh, I'm so sorry. You're out of your damn mind. And again, I don't want to have to play this card, but I've been that guy. You know, I've done this thing that you do. I did it before you, right? I'm older than you guys. I've done this. So I know exactly what this is. And this isn't how you do it. I can guarantee you. This is not how you succeed in this sport. So there's some little fun extra stories that go along with this. And unfortunately, um, we no longer have P1 on pit lane. What a shame. Hey, never mind. Um, Lest you think it's just you, I'm sure you don't. Uh, I do recall, uh, and I'd have to think about exactly what year this was, but it was the, I think it was the final year at the Spa 24 Hours for the magnificent Maserati MC12s with the... I think by then we're called Vita for One Racing, Mikel Bartel's team. And you'll, you'll equally recall they had uh, some fantastic years of success, but so the final year, less so. Um, cars hit trouble. I think they had three that year, and the final car hit trouble. It happened to be reasonably late in the evening, and uh, Daily Sports Cars' uh, intrepid photographer, Peter Pedro May uh, was on pit lane as a, exactly where he was entitled to be, fully kitted up and uh, fully insured, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and uh, was standing where he was perfectly entitled to stand. No cars were moving. I think by that stage they had one car running way, way down, one car retired, and one car clearly in trouble in the pits, and was standing out of the way of the crew in pit lane uh, in nobody's active pit box at that stage, taking pictures to my kind of instruction to find out exactly what was going on with this car and found himself in a situation where some angry pit crew, clearly knowing that their days of glory with that car were done, uh, pushed him using the front bodywork of the Maserati into the active fast lane of the pit lane uh, at the Spa 24 Hours. Um, just basically because they just didn't like the fact that someone was effectively documenting the fact that this year it hadn't gone their way. That did lead to an official complaint. I can tell you that for nothing. Uh, It did lead, I believe, to a reprimand for uh, the team. Uh, It does happen. You know what? 
I've seen photographers and TV crew do some silly things. You see pit crews do some silly things. I've seen fist fights at the Nürburgring 24 hours in the uh, in the in the pit garages in the pit lane. Uh, you know, all human life is here, and it ain't all good, unfortunately. But uh, talking Nürburgring. Uh, uh, <laughs> Listen to that segue. Here. Oh, that was a beauty right there, Goodwin. Well, we're, 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 we're a little way away from the Nürburgring Winter Fries because we've had this delay in completing the show. And rather oddly, uh, this afternoon, uh, news breaking uh, that the result of the Nürburgring Winter Fries has changed with a second place car excluded, the Monti car excluded, um, for a BOP engine power uh, infringement over the 4% uh, uh, above what it was entitled to have. And the number 68 Ford Chip Ganassi GT has been promoted to second place. Sorry, I'm getting my exclusions. There was a question here from Paul Sharp on Twitter. Did you see the Porsche group shot taken on the Nordschleife before the Nürburgring 24 hours? Um, what are your favorite examples of questionable or plain old facepalm promotional releases by teams and manufacturers, drivers? Over the years, you've been covering the sports. Shows us the photo in question. Trust me, I don't need to be reminded of the photo in question. This is a fabulous group shot, moody group shot taken of uh, Porsche cars uh, in the lead SP9 class all the way down to the Cup class cars um, on one of the turns of the Nordschleife. Um, and it's great. You can tell it's a Nordschleife immediately. One of the reasons you can tell it's a Nordschleife immediately is because it's got some of the graffiti that the fans like to paint and chalk onto the road surface. What no one appeared to have noticed at the time. Now, I know we're a family show. Am I allowed to use these words, MP? You are because it's late in the show and we assume no one's listening anymore. Fine. What they failed to notice is just before the front rank of cars, uh, written in, I would say that's probably at least meter-high pink text, uh, is the phrase titwank. Um, and that took some post-production, I can tell you. Um, the notebook ring is the place where this tends to actually show up. And back in the day when I was doing commentary for Nürburgring Ring 24 Hours, and we on occasion did a bit of television as well, and that television was for an international feed and indeed went around the world, including to your fair nation, where it has to be said um, more colourful language tends to be frowned upon a little bit more. Now, that's reasonably easy to, con to control when it's the... Um, the presenters, uh, you, we, we do have a phrase that is used, which is, it's live, don't say fuck or bugger. I apologize for my language. That is the phrase that is used. But I do remember this kind of quite moody, sweeping shot, sweeping along Adenau, uh, to, uh, past the, the, the bridge that goes to the village, and bla emblazoned, unmistakable, unmissable in huge letters that covered almost that the 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 uh that the width of the track was the stellar phrase fuck dortmund i don't quite know why but i'm, I'm guessing it's to link linked in with with football soccer in north american parlance you're wrong but that's what you call it um but uh, but that's what it said and i can't remember which channel it was that was, was uh, taking that feed but i do remember hearing on feedback some real spluttering as that one uh, hit the airwaves uh, it happens you know from my background in government it happens all the time you you know it, there's a stock in trade of a you know a press photographer finding perhaps a not very popular politician having something embarrassing in the background you know it's funny and it's incredibly embarrassing and i i 
did witness the Porsche PR guys having a very quiet afternoon, I have to say, when that one hit, uh, hit social media. And it's social media, by the way, that has just added another massive layer of uh, opportunity for mischief making in these kind of areas. Yeah, I do feel for them because I've been on both sides of the fence. But yeah, it's really, really funny, isn't it? I mentioned, I think I posted this slightly before Lamar this year where the thing I'm always on the lookout for my friend, uh, I believe our friend PR man, Paul Ryan, and probably instilled this observation in me pretty heavily is the conflicting background to be aware of. And so yep. I believe it was the press release that went out for the uh, team project one Porsche effort that ended up winning GTE am at Le Mans, that livery, something that our, friend as well graham our man andy blackmore helped uh with the layout of that on the car at least with the press release they sent out for a car shod on michelin's had it placed directly in front of a giant dunlop advertising hoarding behind it and again it's not as if michelin was paying the team to use their tires it's the exact opposite i understand the team is paying for the privilege to use those Nonetheless, that's just the kind of thing where I look at that and go, well, um, if they haven't already received the phone call, you know it's coming. Because the very first yep. question, you know, it's the team sponsored by name, the company, you know, Pennzoil Oil. And, you know, the the promo photo is of it placed in front of pick whatever else, Quaker State, or again, many others, Valvoline. And you go, come on, man. All you had to do was look up. That's the only thing. Really? Yeah, you, you had one job, man. Just look up and go, oh. But it's it's yeah. it's an interesting it is an interesting part of actually the way that these things are done. If you if you're around any kind of major motorsport event, you will see there's a team uh, and it's quite often quite a big team who is charged with making sure that the branding is correct. In other words, what's been bought by the various organizations is where it should be. And that where it should be is in the line of sight of the TV cameras, amongst others. Can cause conflict, by the way, with uh, photographers, because quite often these hoardings are placed over the areas where photographers like to be. So if you look carefully, you'll sometimes see holes cut in those hoardings for photographers to actually uh, use. There's all sorts of these nips and tucks to, um, you know, what's you know, meat and two veg for one part of the uh, of the racing family, but causes massive issues uh, for others. But uh, yeah, I've been party to all sorts of discussions about branding and whether or not it conflicts with this or it conflicts with that. And you've got, you know, an Audi banner across the top of uh, the Le Mans 24-hour circuit, but it's in clear line of sight. You can see maybe Porsche branding on the corner behind. You know, that, that sort of thing doesn't happen. So trust me, Meetings, site meetings, arguments, you name it. It's, it is everyday stuff to those poor devils who are uh, responsible for making sure that branding is not only placed, but placed uh, in, in line of sight and at a distance that you're going to get clear shots on television and for, uh, for the photographs. Shall we wheel our Corvettes down to the uh, four chicanes for the group photo? Why, yes, of course. Uh, let's go to uh, Johnny Schultz, who says, what's going on with the SRO GT2 class? 
Another timely mm. question here. Jim Glickenhouse's comments about a potential car uh, were the first news I've heard of this class in a long time. Haven't they even announced races for this year? Well, yes, they have. There is going to be a race, and it will be actually this month. Um, it's going to be a Porsche-only race uh, in support of the Spa 24 Hours. So it will be the new GT2 RS Club Sport, I think, from memory, the car is called. Um, very powerful, limited aero, uh, and that car has been on sale for some little time. There'll be something like 20 cars on the grid for that race. They will not all be the GT2 spec car because I'm told that we also see the Porsche 935s, the new cars, that they will be involved as well in that race. But it will be an all Porsche race, and that's been uh, something that's been agreed quite some time ago uh, because Porsche were uh, the first to commit to GT2. Just a really quick teaching about GT2, rather oddly, sits somewhere between GT3 and GT4, not the old gt2 which became gte slash gtlm and what this is is a more powerful car uh, than a gt3 car but with less aerodynamic um grip and it's been uh, been developed to appeal more to gentleman drivers that want that thrill if you like of the huge acceleration and pace but are less able less confident to use the aerodynamic downforce than a professional driver so first in were porsche yes we've heard that jim glickenhouse would like to come with a gt2 version of his spectacular looking 004 yesterday uh, at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. That's on Friday, uh, as we're rec- uh, recording this on the Saturday evening here in the UK. Um, I was extremely privileged to be asked by Audi to uh, to present the unveil of their new addition to that growing family, and that is the Audi R8 uh, LMS GT4. And um, boy, oh boy, is that a spectacular-looking thing. Uh, roof uh, air intake, which I think is going to be a signature part of that effort. Looked to me to have pretty convincing aero, I have to tell you. And that car was taken up the hill at Goodwood today by Tom Christensen uh, for the first time. So a dynamic launch for the Audi. Beyond that, what else are we going to see? I think uh, I've got a couple of calls to make, but I think there's a couple of potential projects that at the moment have been uh, just delayed a little. Uh, in the case of one of them, for very good reasons, I think we might by now have heard something from uh, Aston Martin. They're definitely interested. Their problem is they've had too many orders for the GT3 car. They're actually fully stretched in uh, building and supporting year one of orders for the GT3 uh, slash GTE Vantage twin turbo car. I expect to see McLaren in that marketplace. They, too, have got a new GT3 car in the marketplace and are feeling, I'm sure, the growing pains of supporting a growing band of customers. Their their cars now delivered into double figures for uh, GT3. Lamborghini, long been mentioned as being interested in this, and you can see why that would fit with the kind of big capacity, effectively the same drivetrain as the um, as the Audi. If you can make an Audi fit GT2, you can sure as eggs as eggs fit uh, Lamborghini there. Where will you see them? Well, the, Lam- the uh, Blancpain GT Sports Club, which is the sub-Blancpain GT 
series. I suspect we might well see it in Blancpain Sprint pretty soon. It's been mentioned that we will see cars, or at least a provision for cars, in the British GT Championship, although um, some sources within that championship tell me at the moment they're expecting to be oversubscribed with their existing cars. And there will be provision in North America in uh, Blancpain World Challenge America. I think that's what it's called this week. Blank face, um, pain stare. That's the one. Um, so that's that is where you can expect to see it. There will be a global formula. It is designed, I believe, to assist with two things. One is not to get the the people as Chris Renke from Audi said yesterday. Um, these are the people that pay for that motorsport. These are the people that pay for customer racing. Um, what you don't want to do is to. Uh, let technology advance to the point where they're not enjoying their racing anymore. And these are cars designed to allow them to enjoy their racing. Let's wait and see. Uh, I think there is strong demand, quite how significant those cars become in terms of international motorsports remains to be seen. But they are spectacular. There's no doubt about that. Have I got concerns about a mixed grid of those with GT3s? Yes, I do, because they will be much quicker than a GT3 on a straight line, which means all the overtaking is going to have to be done under braking and through the turns. And that doesn't feel like a particularly safe mix to me. But let's wait and see how that one kind of pans out. The final, by the way, the final uh, manufacturer at the moment that I've heard mentioned and I've now seen pictures of the car, I believe, is their intended weapon is an unusual one. That's KTM. Um, seen a longer version of the KTM crossbow testing at Imola in the last few days. And it does look as if KTM have got plans to bring something new to the marketplace. And GT2 would seem to be the right area for that to go. So that's what it is. That's what's coming. There will be, I'm sure, more if sales pick up as we often seen in the past that once a marketplace is developed then people will fill it uh, let's wait and see just what level of success that sro have they tend to know their market very well i would be at this point surprised if what is being described by a number of people as being an answer to the question nobody asked um stefan mattel smart than that he would have done this without knowing there's a customer base Going to throw one more general question at you, Graham. Then I'll have you pick one or two to throw at me as we speed towards the conclusion of the show here. Go to Anthony Ghosh, who says, Graham, how long were you sitting on the Goodyear story? Is this a completely new program or just a rebranding of the Dunlop effort? And you might start uh, will, with answering uh, what the good story is in reference to. Yeah, well, the Goodyear story is that um, Michelin, the tie war we've got this year with Michelin and Dunlop, not this year rather, and this season in WC, you have to keep correcting me on that one, MP, um, will be replaced for the coming season, 2019-2020 season, in the WC uh, by Michelin versus Goodyear. So the Goodyear brand will be coming back to global sports car racing in LMP2 only at the moment um, from Silverstone in September. How long have I been sitting on it? It's been around for quite a while and with various potential iterations. There's certainly been talk about potentially the Goodyear brand being back in LMP1, certainly with at least one GTE program that I absolutely know um, we're looking at Goodyear as the branding for it. Um, but LMP2 it is. 
Uh, it will not be rebranding of the current Dunlop product. It will be entirely new product. Uh, and that is good news for people that like a tie war, probably bad news for Michelin. Um, let's wait and see exactly what pans out as the teams decide which brand they're going to declare for the start of their season. I had a long chat with a couple of uh, LMP2 players um, over the last few days, and the one area they're keeping very close to their chest at the moment, and I suspect that's because it's a very competitive marketplace commercially and in terms of performance, is their tyre choice. Awesome. Now your turn to grab a right, couple so and throw my way. Let's have a quick look. There we go. This one from Grim Brother One on the WC Reddit group. Is the alternative timeline? Porsche goes ahead with the 9R3, the LMP2000. Uh, if you're not sure what that car is, by the way, dear listeners, based around the engine that uh, later, uh, the V10 engine that later did service in the road-going Carrera GT, and goes head-to-head with Audi in the 2000 Le Mans 24 Hours. How does history change over that next decade? MP. Oh, boy. Thanks for serving this was that. Still, this was the stillborn LMP900 yep. car, wasn't it? Well, seeing as how McNish was the person to test the uh, 9R3 and was still a Porsche cat, and the absence of this program going forward uh, was really the catalyst that led to him shifting over to the Audi side, I would say it would have a pretty big ripple effect there for sure. Um, Boy, I mean, do we then knock out Bentley? from being any real need there as well. Um, Toyota as well, knowing that Alan would obviously uh, have great success with Audi um, and then get the call up from Toyota to go and play in formula one. Uh, Obviously then all, you know, he did have the relationship with them at Le Mans too. Um, Boy, yeah, this is a great question. It could shake all kinds of stuff up. Um, it, it could. I mean, it's, it's amazing. How, you know, one car, one program could have changed so very many things. And that does, doesn't just mean on-track success. It does mean you're quite right. It's the drivers involved in this. And, and let's not forget either the background staff, the design staff, the engineering staff that would have been soaked up by the Porsche effort, which meant that some of those people would not have been available to Audi or to anybody else. It does have uh, an extraordinary knock-on effect. And, and let's face it, Porsche do have a kind of habit when they're coming of either coming and doing stuff very, very well and dominating or fading away. It's a little Ford-like in that regard, isn't it? The, it's a brand that, if there's not pretty immediate and telling success, will be gone and gone for a little wee while. So, yeah, a, a reason to regret. Remember, they didn't; they weren't back for a further 15 years after that program was canned at the top end. Yes, in GTs, but not at the top end. Awesome. Well, let me see. I'll, I'll, this one here I'll just throw to myself, and then we'll throw one or two at you, and then we will be done, Graham. Uh, let's see. We'll go to Brett Ross, who says, MP, curious on your thoughts on how the SRO America effort is going. Doesn't seem like too much has changed. It's fun to see the Bentleys race, and the racing is good. I agree with you that it will always be world challenge to me too. I miss the Cadillacs. I think you're pretty much speaking for me as well here, Brett. 
uh, it seems like they've had a very good season so far of motor racing under the full Blanc Pod GT World America America GT Pain Blank World name. I I've also seen the one thing though that I expected, and we mentioned multiple times, Graham, and it is that despite the awesome Bentleys and some other factory related semi works, whatever type things at the super top tier in its uh, GT3 base class. A lot of other classes, a lot of splitting of calendars. You have this faction of what I'm just calling world challenge, this type of class uh, touring cars, say, or GT4 ish, TCR ish going and racing over here, but you don't have the big full show. This event over here might be sprint race. This one over here at a different venue might be Sprint X. They're kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit endurance. At least there's a driver change involved. It's what I expected, Brett, and I think it's what many people expected. They have indeed gone from trying to be a real top-line pro spectator-based. We're in the marketplace as a heavily concerted product for folks to digest and enjoy to we're just about ourselves really there is a tv package there is there's lots of great drivers and teams and cars all every all the ingredients are there it's just their decision on how to present it and how to facilitate it that has been a significant change from just a year or two ago when it was full uh, world challenge vision operated and led before the SRO bought the controlling rights to everything. So now when I think of IMSA, we have two events during the season where you do not have more or less the full rotation of all their classes together. You have the two GT only events, one at Lime Rock, one at VIR. Those are amazing. Those feel special to me. Just about everywhere else we go, knowing that in the name of cost savings, there's some events like Long Beach where you get the pro classes, not the AM classes. There are a couple of events where, again, there might be one class within the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship that isn't participating. But by and large, when you see the IMSA name at an event, you know you're going to get a lot. And it's going to be more or less everything together. It's going to be the WeatherTech Championship. There's most likely going to be a Michelin Pilot Challenge race. You're going to have some form of Super Trofeo Support Series, or again, there's going to be a mix, but you know that when you go to an IMSA race, you're going to get, by and large, everything IMSA has to offer. thing that is, I think, going to end up playing out to the detriment of the World Challenge folks if they see this as a detriment, if they believe it to be a negative, is when they show up to an event, you get portions of what they have to offer in most instances. There are some definitely where you get it all, but I think there's just so much fracturing of the presentation 
They were at Sonoma at Sears Point somewhat recently. And again, I'm struggling to remember exactly how every class shook out, whether it was a sprint or sprint X or this or that. I just believe that as race fans, although in sports car racing, we know that it is definitely a case of a million different classes and rules and formulas. There's all kinds of minutia involved. If you're going to go watch the ELMS race somewhere, you know what you're going to get. You get the WEC, you know what you're going to get. You get IMSA, you know what you're going to get. If you just saw that World Challenge is going to be at a track and you bought a ticket without really diving in ahead of time, I don't know if you'd have any kind of real grasp, Brett, as to what you were going to watch. Are all the cars there? Half of them? Is this more of a touring car weekend? Is this a GT weekend? Is it a sprint? Is it a sprint X? Is it a combo of both? I just don't know if that kind of fracturing of presentation from round to round is something that's going to allow them to hold a significant place in the professional marketplace. And if they care about that, then they might rethink their strategy. If they don't, if they're just happy serving their paddock and really not worrying about fans and followers and all kinds of stuff, just the people who want to race are the only ones we are catering towards. And everything I just said is completely irrelevant. But at least for me, I find it almost too mentally taxing to stay on top of who's doing what and where within that series. Um, But yeah, I agree. The Bentleys are awesome. And I also miss Cadillacs. I also just miss knowing that if World Challenge was showing up, you knew you were getting everything. Uh, Let's see. Ian Chicken, our man, Ian Chicken. Hey, Ian. What is that Facebook group that uh, he happens to be a part of, Graham? Sports Cow Worldwide. Sports Cow Worldwide. We heartily endorse your participation in that group. He says, having seen a comment made that there are too many cars for the Spa 24, do these tracks have a maximum grid, or is it the series or organizers who decide? How is it determined if there is a limit, Mr. Goodwin? There is a license, I believe, for the maximum. Now, that is – you can actually ask for that license to be amended, uh, but there is a license issued, and that's determined by – it's kind of a difficult one, and and it's a bit of a movable fee. So, for instance, Silverstone uh, pretty recently had 101 little Citroen C1 city cars in a 24-hour race. That's completely bonkers. Uh, But clearly, they are cars of very limited performance. You would not get approval uh, to get 101 for the sake of arguing GT3 cars at Silverstone. Um, so to put it into context, I think that was a comment I actually made in response to a thread, uh, may even have been our story, that talked about there being 72, now 73 cars, by the way, with the Herbie sort of replica Porsche Cup car that's joined the grid for the Spa 24. Um, my view is too many cars for Spa 24 hours when you're talking about 72 cars are pretty equal performance, but with drivers of very different abilities. Um, what is the process by which that's determined? It is determined, I th- seem to recall, by the FIA when they issue the uh, the classification, whether or not it's a, 
class one or class two or class three track, a determination would be made as to how many and of what sort cars are permitted to race there unless and until the circuit applies for variation to that. That's, I think, the answer. I'm going to take two more here, uh, three more. Uh, two of them from James Counter, and then we'll close with one from Doug Bonham. James says uh, of his first two, this one's more aimed at MP. What is it like having a piece you have written hit the trending spot on a client site? Do you give yourself a pat on the back or do you just treat it as part of your job? Would very much say it's the latter, James. Um, my clients and I think every author, whether they are you know in a client-based freelance situation or they are just a straight-up employee of that media organization, you aren't getting paid to have things not be read. So I always, it feels good when I see that something has had a big reaction and the numbers come back that say, Hey, a lot of people read this thing. It's also admittedly what I'm hired to do would also say that there are certainly a lot of stories that, you know, and everyone knows ahead of time are just grist of the mill. They're not meant to be big performers uh, those are often press release based. We had earlier this week, the Starworks team announced that they were taking a step back for a couple of races to try and figure out why their Audi R8 LMS GT3 has been underperforming, uh, in GTD. That's just simply taking quotes supplied in a story from the team in a press release, trying to give a little bit of context leading into those quotes and coming out of those quotes takes five minutes maybe 10 to put together and off you go no expectation that that story is going to be winning pulitzers and anything else but it's also something that just from a number standpoint as you know graham there are stories that go up every day where you know they're going to catch people's attention there are ones where you are through an opinion piece or an analysis piece you're helping to add some sort of depth or context to something that's happened that needs it. And then there's just the numbers game. Hey, people come to our site sometimes multiple times per day. If they're seeing the same thing they read this morning, late in the afternoon, well, they're probably not going to stay very long and that's not going to help us. So let's make sure where applicable. If there is something real to put up, just try and keep feeding, feeding the beast with numbers of stories. And so, yeah, just I th- think I might speak for a lot of writers. Granted, those who've been doing it for a while, it's great when you see something take off. It's awesome when your clients are happy, but probably do very few happy dances when something takes off today than maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it was when I was newish to this profession back then it was the world stopped oh my goodness 17 people read the story i wrote (laughs) you know i mean that meant something and then the next day 19 people oh my god this is crazy you know i got i done got me a career um yeah again look it always feels good to feel good you know you you don't want folks to not respond to whether it's the story you write the song you sing the painting you paint that's always a positive that's just maybe a case here where we're actually, you know, hired to do this and to make people come and want to look and hopefully want to stay and read more. So uh, 
the the excitement i guess james maybe dulls a little bit over time let's go to the other question that james has graham and uh this one's for you what's the most embarrassing pit mistake you've ever seen and he says someone missing their breaking point maybe hitting their team car etc he says that crash at the nurburgring 24 was the worst i can remember uh pit mistakes oh so so many the funniest by a distance and oddly enough it's a man i was talking to at goodwood yesterday uh, as he sat um fettling a car he loves dearly and a car he used to own the uh, delara sp1 judd martin short from rail center racing there's a there's a question we've not dealt with which i'll, I'll deal with in periphery here because i'm about to annoy martin by telling this story so i'll i'll uh, hit the other end of this too um Martin has run some spectacular cars down through the years, uh, including the LMP1 efforts, GT3 cars, GT2 cars, all sorts of things. Uh, But he had a time where he was the launch customer for the radical SR9 LMP2 car, a very capable little car in its day. uh, And that had a difficult genesis. I'm pretty certain Martin's car ran with a little Judd V8. And the initial idea was going to be two. There, there only ever was only ever one car. Roll Center went through the growing pains with that program, uh, as you often do. And I can't remember where we were for a Le Mans series race, possibly even an early uh, European Le Mans series race. But uh, the team had been struggling all year with the car. And indeed had struggled on this particular day there'd been some damage the car was in the pits it was ready to go we were running out of track time martin was getting justifiably irritable because it's a lot of time it's a lot of money it's a lot of efforts and there was limited time left to go and do what needed to be done uh team are ready it's that moment you'll recognize this one mp Everything's done, everything's buttoned down. Finally, we can get down to it. Finally, we can get down and do the job. And Martin went to press the big red um, ignition button and by mistake, in a car he wasn't familiar with, pressed the onboard (laughs) fire extinguisher. (laughs) Oh, no. The only sound you could hear was a muffled, unrepeatable series of insults towards himself. Uh, from Martin from within his helmet. Not a, another word was said inside that garage. Uh, that's the one. That, I don't know if you've got any stories, but that's what I will take with me to the grave. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, there have been plenty. The, in terms of comedy, I don't know if this is worse, but in terms of comedy, many refueling systems on pit lane involve uh, what's called a dead man valve. And that is, Uh, When you plug into the car with a fuel probe in order for the fuel to flow from the refueling tank into the vehicle, there is just basically a a very simple valve with a lever on it that someone needs to manually open to allow it to flow and close once the refueling process is stopped. I've seen more than once. I think I've done the dead man once or twice throughout the years, but really was not something I'd ever done. But I think I've seen it. I know I recall seeing it at least on one IndyCar team that I uh, worked on. And I've seen it in other races too where 
some sort of critical moment, boy, we really need to get this car in and out quickly in order for us to, you know, hold the great position we're in, win the race, be in the podium, whatever. Car comes in, comes to a stop, the refueler plugs in, and for whatever reason, the dead man operator dropped his or her radio, or again, who knows what. They were distracted by someone else asking them a question. With the loud din of racing going on, again, it's not always obvious when your car is on pit lane, um, just from a sound standpoint to make you look up or, or catch your attention. I just remember a couple instances, Graham, where fuel probe goes in, the fueler's sitting there waiting to see fluid go through some fuel again depending on the era you wouldn't necessarily see that um super easily and you turn around and see that the person manning the dead man has their head turned and is engaged in a conversation or something else and not a damn thing is flowing through the hose whatsoever and you're like what are you doing this comes back to the you had one job and so you know you often it's only a couple of seconds of inactivity but it's just it's the visuals graham that's the thing that is hilarious because you've got this whole orchestrated thing people jump over the wall and they're carrying the tire and zoom zoom up and down and back and it's just flurry we're gonna get this car rolling in nine seconds or whatever it might be and you just got someone who's like looking at birds in the sky counting the number uh, of uh, pebbles on the ground and someone has to knock them into uh, awareness that hey we can't go until you decide to let the car have a little bit of fuel, buddy. So, uh, and then, yeah, you watch everyone else streak off pit lane uh, during a caution or whatever while your car is just sitting there in isolation. The other thing, and I don't know if I'd say it was worst or whatever, but this was the all-time funniest one just from a visual. In the 98 Indy 500, we had qualified second and... I guess, and how they choose the teams to participate in the pit stop competition, which I think paid like $50,000 to win or something like that. I mean, there was, you know, real incentive to do well. We were a really small team. We had almost no anything. Uh, This is just one of those bizarre, uh, bizarre things. But one of our crew members, for example, is the brother-in-law of our chief mechanic. Now, family not strange right to have folks involved well this awesome person casey peterson his normal job is being an actor loves racing has no real racing experience but we've decided because he's married to our chief mechanic's sister well you're going to be part of the team and so casey for example i believe was the original choice to be Jason Priestley's lead role in Beverly Hills 90210, and he turned that down. Uh, that was, you know, so this guy was someone who grew up acting, could have had, I think, a pretty good career. Regardless, that didn't necessarily work out. Loved motorsports, had no, I mean, I no, didn't have a mechanical bone in his body, but we decided, hey, you're going to be going over the wall changing tires at the 8500 for us. And so Casey was like, sure, sounds like a fun adventure. So, among the things we didn't do but should have Graham was regular pit stop practice. We could barely get the car on track. It was just a very small underfunded team. 
So we're like, oh, they invited us to this pit stop competition. Sure, that'll be great. You know, maybe we can win something. We can use that money. So I think we did a couple of practice pit stops, whatever it was. The way they set things up, it's very much, it's a duel. They set up the staging where you have uh, about, I don't know, 100, maybe 30 meters, 100 feet or so, where the cars launch forward, pull into side-by-side set up pit boxes. Uh, There's a little cement barrier in between and the minute the car breaks through the little timing beacon as it gets close coming to the pit box that's when the timing goes for the official start of the pit stop and then once you're done both cars burn out leave the box cross the um whatever the the exit timing light that gives you the overall time it tells you who wins who loses and so it's kind of a knockout thing i think eight cars entered total whittling down to a show off of the winner so we got to do ours don't remember who was on the other side but i think it might have been the panther team and they were the reigning champions of all pit stop competitions on the planet earth they were just amazing something along all i know all i really recall is we were pitted up against one of the best if not the best so our driver greg ray awesome burnout a lot of speed comes flying into the pit box trying to think what it is that i did I think they make you do a mock refueling. Like you don't actually plug in the pro, but you just kind of, you know, hold it and, and stand in place. I think I did that or Jack. The, I, again, I don't remember what, but the photo that someone took afterwards was just, it was the funniest <laughs> thing. Graham, I, I got to find it. It's the funniest thing ever. It's the saddest thing ever. It shot head on probably a hundred feet down away so you know the cars exiting the pit stall would be coming straight at the photographer this photographer took a shot of our competitors pit stall completely empty i believe the mechanics had actually just stood up and walked away as well meanwhile our car is still up on its goddamn jacks The right front tire done by our chief mechanic, done. I think he's stood up. I think our rear tire changers, they were done, were stood up. It was effectively just the car the car up in the air, Greg sitting in it, waiting. I don't remember if I'm in the photo or not, just holding the, the fuel probe out. I think, I'd, I think you're supposed to hold it as long as the car was in the air. And it's just Casey on his knees. <laughs> The left front tire was still not on the car. Oh, my God. It's the saddest photo ever. Everyone's cleared out, gone home. They've had dinner, gone to bed. He's still there by himself in isolation, trying to fight to put on this damn tire by himself. Oh, is the saddest, funniest thing ever, ever. But he wanted the experience, man. He got it. We finished eighth and dead last in the competition. There's still timing. I don't know if the cars come down yet. He's still there. Uh, Um, I'll give you a a slight counterpoint and another one about practicing, by the way. Uh, Alan Muggleston, longtime race engineer, uh, now uh, part of the Ginetta LMP1 program. But at this time... Le Mans series with the little Kiffel ASM team, uh, which is where I first met Olivier Pla. Mm. And um, Alan drilling the uh, little Portuguese team that could. And uh, this is a team that did very, very well with uh, limited 
resource with a variety of Zytec chassis for the most part. Lola, I think, at one point as well. And lunchtime and pit stop practice. And Alan standing there with the stopwatch, Portuguese guys flinging tires around, you know, blah, blah, blah. End of pit stop practice, he clicks the watch and he just stood there shaking his head as these guys were backslapping each other. Look at that. That was brilliant. Blah, blah, blah. As you watch this little Zytec with the rear tires on the front and the front tires on the back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention. Not just, easy. No, I'll mention one other and it just happened. And I felt so, I felt so bad, but it was, uh, it was a rarity. Um, it was at the uh, Detroit IndyCar race. Uh, in early june here and boy i'm forgetting i think yeah it was will powers car um he was either in the lead or something along those lines having a great race and this is just it was the rarest of rare errors is matt Johnson, his crew chief uh brother of mr Johnson, he of tracy crone's uh teammate or co-driver in perpetuity uh nick Johnson, and so the the cardinal rule and or sin as a crew chief is you do not send your car from the box until you have seen all of your tire changers complete the stop and the fuel probe has been disengaged in Matt, I guess, knowing that the team was always rock solid uh, for whatever reason, finished his outside tire, saw that the rear tire changes were done. And I guess also saw that the fuel probe had been pulled and gave will the signal to go and he was looking up pit lane when he gave that signal what he did not see was the right front tire changer who happened to be inside closest to the wall pit wall waving his arms frantically that the car was not ready to go and so matt making the rarest of mistakes i mean he's truly like the gold standard for crew chiefs in indycar just simply made that cardinal mistake of not uh he got three well his own included three out of the four tires visually cleared got his refueler cleared and assumed forgot something i'm not sure that the right front tire changer was all good and sent will without confirming and will traveled 100 feet 150 feet and the right front wheel came off and their race was uh, any shot of victory is more or less lost. But again, that's not a worst. It's just one of those things where you go, oh boy, that that's Happens. well, but that's something Matt that will haunt Matt forever because that's how much of a perfectionist he is. So when I see that, I'm like, oh, you know, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't as if, oh, I, I was confused. It was just a true, I didn't even bother to look. And so, yeah, I can pretty much guarantee you that'll never happen again but it's those little things where yeah i you i feel bad for the crew chief yeah um one, one final thing by the way uh before we can move on to what i'm sure is gonna be the last question which is uh nurburgring 24 hours you mentioned that in the question and uh as i was leaving the media room uh the first of two days i spent at the goodwood festival of speed i was looking across at what i just couldn't place the car at first, recognize the color, recognize something about it. Uh, one thing I love about the Goodwood Festival is they do bring 
race dirty cars, quite often the Le Mans winning car will be there, and it was indeed this year. But uh, in particular, we had three cars present this year. Um, the little Toyota Supra, um, the race for Toyota Kazoo Racing, the race winning Audi, uh, a late arrival on late on Thursday evening, and the Lexus that uh, your and my good friend Andrew Skippy Hall captured mid major refueling fire. Uh, and all three were there. Uh, the uh, Toyota still with the massive dent in the side that cost Adam Christodoulou, uh, I think at the time may well have been leading the race in the Black Falcon AMG. The race winning Audi uh, with much of the rear bodywork still missing, and I think always will now miss that rear bodywork, and indeed the fire-scarred Lexus um, all running up the hill. Uh, these things happen. You know, this is this is part of the, of the heat of competition, quite literally in the case of the Lexus. Um, but uh, scary stuff when you get a, a fire in the pit lane and we can laugh about it. But my God, you know what? These guys work in extremists, don't they? Final question goes to our man, Graham, stripper pole Goodwin. Comes from Doug Bonham. He says, one of everyone's favorite details from the Nürburgring 24 hours is seeing the Opal Manta's foxtail flap in the breeze if you had to force one imsa team to fly a foxtail at sebring in the spirit of the manta who would it be penske really (laughs) yeah because 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 what what little i know about the captain and i don't know the captain well we've spoken twice ever um, but the, uh, what I do know about the captain is he absolutely is a perfectionist and it would massively irritate him. And that I'd find very funny. That's all. I, you know, I didn't think of Penske. I tried to think of the most serious team there. And that isn't Penske. I'm not saying they, oh, they really? aren't serious, but yeah, there's actually, there, there's actually some really, they're, by and large, really fun, good-natured people. Externally, I can see how the perception would be. Would certainly suit the Mazda. I would say Action Express Racing. Uh, There are some good characters there, too, but uh, stylistically, uh, not a lot of yucks and guffaws and ha-ha-has in general. That's a... joyless isn't the right word but maybe 90 percent there i mean this is a again there are de- some definite exceptions uh but yeah for the most part that's not a team where i just see a lot of haha and he he going on and so i think having to have something silly like that would make them bristle even more it's what, than roger it's what you're it's what you're saying that action express and sean heckman not a good mix yeah here, now here would be this would be great let's close with this so the question from doug was which car which team would we make carry what if we use the manta foxtail as an actual little hair extension kind of like a you know an actual mullet like thing at the back which driver Ooh. would we make spend the event with it duct taped to the back of their head Ooh, now that is a good one, isn't it? Let's have a think about that one for a moment. Did 
this is a too long a pause for a podcast, isn't it? No, I'm thinking Ben Keating. You know, I mean, you got to go for the guy. You got to go yeah. for the Chrome Dome, right? I mean, and just bit magically as a foxtail spreading a, out the back of their head. Bit of a Davy Crockett look. See, yeah. Mm, Jan Magnuson. Jeez. <laughs> or, or don't have it as a don't have it as the kind of the foxtail at the back. What about if he used it for Ben as a monobrow? I love it, and maybe a second one is a bit of a mohawk. Oh, it's a look, isn't a it? A fox hawk. There we go. We finally <laughs> figured it out. A fox hawk. And maybe, again, assu- I can't believe anyone would be listening at this point. It's just the two of us. Uh, but if, if there are any of you poor souls who are still listening, send us your ideas. Who among, it could be, we shouldn't just make it exclusive IMSA, WEC, ELMS, wherever. Send in. I'm going to send in just use your good old social media preference there, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, send in some ideas of who you think should carry the, uh, the Fox Hawk or the uh, Fox tail on the back of their head. The, the Fox brow. That sounds very German. Um, we need your ideas because we don't have enough of our own. I think we're done. It's been fun. I hope we're done. We better be done. Good to have you back fella. Yeah. And, uh, we might be I might be turning over the reins to you and young Steven I, for I, the next week or two as uh, we focus on uh, some non-racing things here in the Pruitt household again. So thanks for taking some time here, my friend, this two-parter. Apologies to everyone who was waiting for this and had to wait until the weekend. I think this is the first time ever uh, one will be going up over the weekend. But yeah, some uh, some other things have conspired to make that a necessity. With all that said, I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. This is the Weekend Sports Cars, and it is presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. We'll look forward to speaking to you next week.